0: This is Indian Noir, India's most critically acclaimed horror and crime storytelling podcast. Follow Indian Noir on at Indian Noir on Instagram. You are listening to the complete first season of Trishul. Independent India has faced many threats from within and without. Most of them have been thwarted thanks to the courage, skills and intellect of the men and women who serve in our military and intelligence organizations. But sometimes, our enemies win. In the aftermath of the 2611 attacks, a deep-cover black ops agency was created to eliminate threats from within. Anarchist death cults, vicious double agents, traitorous political cabals, clandestine terror cells, and dangerous puppets of enemy states. Only three things are known about this secretive organization. One, their agents are deployed as a trio, a stealthy intelligence operative, a lethal special forces soldier, and a cunning field commander. Two, their motto is Death to Our Enemies. 3. In classified logs, they are referred to as Threshul. life depended on it. He ran splashing filthy water pooled in the potholes that dotted the unpaved pathways that cut through the Satnami Nagar slum in the outskirts of Bhopal. Leland was convinced he was being chased by a wraith. It was a creature of the night, dressed in black, sporting eyes that flashed green when it caught the glint of the occasional street lamp. There was only one way to escape this vengeful, sentient shadow. To quickly reach the go-down at the eastern end of the slum, where his boys would back him up. Slim as a rake, and dressed in a floral shirt and skinny grey pants that barely reached his ankles, Lallan bounded with long strides to keep away from the clutches of the menacing hunter. The silence of the slum was shattered by sounds of the chase, the footfalls, the clattering of objects that Lalan pulled off racks, or carts parked on the sides of the path, pots he threw at his pursuer. People didn't dare to come out of their rudimentary huts, afraid to get in the way of quarrelling gang members. Violent brawls and killings were a daily occurrence in this poverty-stricken district. Lallan was nearly there. The blue gates of the go-down were in his sights, and as luck would have it, all eight of his boys were in front of the gate, smoking and watching voyeuristic MMS videos of local girls filmed without permission while they were using public toilet facilities. This one, the baker's daughter, is ache the must. She should be our next delicacy. One of them said, before spotting Lalan, who was lopping towards them, panting like a dog. Their leader wanted to scream out for help, but he was so out of breath, he could only let out a hoarse cry. He placed both his hands on his knees and took deep, wheezing breaths. ''Boys, uh, boys, someone is after me!'' He managed to say finally. No sooner had Lulan uttered these words the street lamps that lit the surroundings went out one after the other with a tinkling sound. The path that Lullen had taken was now the domain of the dark night. A thin tactical lasso whipped out of the gloom and looped around Lalan's neck and pulled him back into the murkiness. Oh! Lalan's boys were shocked at the sight and they hesitated for a moment before running into the arms of the darkness to rescue their leader. While they did not carry torches, they were resourceful. They pulled out their mobile phones and enabled the torch function. The thugs shouted Lullan's name as they pierced the gloom with the beams of light from their mobile devices. It lit up the garbage strewn surroundings, the unpainted walls covered in cow dung, and the tops of dusty trees that drooped sadly in the warm night. Then something else appeared in their field of vision and slipped back into the shadows. a human form draped in blackness. Its slippery body was agile like a fish in the depths of a dark lake. "'What was that?' one of the thugs muttered. "'Did you see it?' Their quickened pulses, stressful breathing patterns and sweaty brows showed that they would much rather flee the scene. But their beloved leader was in the clutches of this demon, They had to retrieve the man that made sure their bills got paid. "'Hey, come out, whoever you are. Fight face to face like a man,' a bearded thug said. No sooner had he uttered the words, he heard a voice whisper into his ears. "'What if I am not a man? Do I get to break the rule?' The thug let out a cry before whipping around, but there was no one in the darkness. A sharp cry of pain was heard to his left. He turned his light to the location and found that the knight had swallowed one of his buddies. The bearded man felt his bowels loosening as the sound of bones breaking and kneecaps being shattered, followed by screams of pain, filled the night air. "'Viru! Uh, dharma! Uh, Karan!' he said into the shadows. But all he heard were whimpers and moaning. Lalanbai he said. No response. The night was the domain of chirping insects and the distant, forlorn horn of a passenger train. The bearded thug turned tail and ran back to the go-down. The blue gate and the well-lit compound house behind its steel security beckoned him. But he never reached the safety of their base. An Uzi EXB-21 expandable steel baton flew through the air and slammed against the back of his head, knocking him face-first down into the mud a mocking laughter followed. The laughter emanated from Faizah Khan. Five feet eight inches tall, built like a mixed martial arts fighter who had no use for bulky flesh. She wore a black tactical one-piece bodysuit that hugged her rock-hard figure. A handgun was holstered to her right thigh and the karambit A small Indonesian curved knife resembling a claw rested against her left hip. The Ninox night vision device sat atop her head, its probing twin eyepieces flipped up in standby position. Faisa scanned the bodies crumpled on the ground with amusement. All eight of them left with severe fractures. She knew she was a bit too harsh on them, but then again, the intelligence briefings had told her that the men were serial gang rapists who had never faced justice in the corrupt local courts. She had made sure they would never walk again without a walking stick. She turned towards the moaning form of Lullen. Then she dragged his writhing bound form by his collar. The man struggled and protested with pitiful screams as he was pulled towards the base of a tree. With practiced perfection, Faeser strung up Lullen by his feet on one of the branches of the tree with the aid of her tactical lasso. He was hanging headfirst like a pathetic, squirming worm. Lullen whimpered like a child and tried to weasel his way out of the bondage as Faeser looked on with contempt. She slapped him hard across his mouth and shushed him like an abusive mother. Leland, the more you struggle, the more you're going to piss me off. We know they call you and Bhopal. You are a fixer. You bring valuable intel to the highest bidder. Your information is always solid. 100% guaranteed. And we also know you use your network of agents and government offices to steal classified data. Lallan gulped in fear as he listened to Faiz's calm voice. Recently, you procured and handed over the details of a consultant who worked on some of India's biggest water sanitation projects. To certain parties, we've had our eye on for a long time. Leland screamed for help at the top of his voice, forcing Faiza to slam her elbow into his sternum. The fixer choked and coughed. Strands of saliva drooled out of his mouth and spilled into his eyes and the insides of his nostrils. Hey, hey, come on, stop fighting. Listen, Leland, listen. You be a good boy and tell me what I need to know and no one will harm you. Give me the name of the consultant and the people you sold the information to. Leland's boys were lying on the street with broken bones, moaning and muttering incoherently. There was no way Leland could talk his way out of this situation. There was no bargaining with this beautiful woman who stung like a hornet. So he spoke. He told her everything he knew. Fazer pulled out a pencil-thin device and recorded the statement for further analysis. When Leland was done, Fazer gently stroked his cheek and spoke into the tactical throat mic wrapped around her neck. On the actual, I am done here. Can you unleash the night haunters? she said. There was a faint buzz of static as the person on the other side responded. Leland wept certain that Faisa had just uttered the words that would sentence him to a terrible death. She smiled at him and then turned and looked down the road. In moments, a large black van with tinted windows emerged from the groom and came to a screeching halt in front of the tree, where Lallan hung like a hapless Vetal from Indian myths. Well-built officers, both men and women in civilian clothing, streamed out of the vehicle. They cuffed Lallan's injured goons and dragged them into the van. They are here for you, Lallan. I'm going to cut you down and you are going to follow the instructions of the officers in that van like a good dog, Fazer said. I don't want to die, madam, Lallan said. They are not going to harm you, but they will disappear you for a while. They will give you opportunities to make amends by sourcing information for us. If you consent, and if they decide you can be trusted, after a while, after many, many tests of your loyalty towards us, they will let you go back to your normal life, Feza said. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Lalan said gratefully. Believe me, Lalan, I would much rather hang you by your neck for all the fellow Indians you have betrayed for all the sins you have committed against our great country. But I don't run the show. I am just the knife in the dark, Fazer said. A warm stain spread in front of Lullin's pants. He knew that from this day forth, there would be lines drawn for him that he could never cross. If he did, this woman would be there to slit his throat before he became aware of her presence. He felt sorry for the men he had sold the details of the consultant to. The two men watched the Volkswagen hatchback pull into the driveway. They had been observing the family that lived in the two-story home for days now noting their daily routines and patterns of behavior while they were leaving and entering their home. They would occasionally transmit updates to their masters via an encrypted messaging app, waiting for the order to perform the dirty deed. On the eighth day, the message notification pinged the mobile just after lunchtime, finally giving the men the blessing to initiate the kidnapping. A middle-aged woman in t-shirt and jeans and her 8 year old daughter in a sky-blue frock stepped out of the parked car after a joyous day of shopping at the nearby mall. The mother opened the boot and was gathering shopping bags When the grey car raced to the entrance of the driveway and braked hard, causing the tyres to squeal in agony. The man in the passenger seat stepped out wearing a ski mask and he ran towards the mother and the daughter, brandishing a handgun. Before the woman could turn and get a hold of her daughter, the end of the barrel found its way to the little girl's forehead. The child screamed in terror. The man clasped a hand around the girl's mouth and swept her close to him. He then shook his head and muttered, Ask your husband to wait for the phone call. If you get the police involved, we will kill your daughter. We are watching you. The mother tried to shout for help from her neighbors, but that resulted in the masked man smacking the little girl with the butt of his gun. The helpless mother stopped immediately and fell to the floor on her knees, reaching out to her daughter with extended arms. Pointing the gun at the child's head, the man walked backwards, holding his victim close to his body. He shoved the whimpering girl into the back seat, tied her hands and plastered a tape across her mouth. Then... The car sped away into the quiet afternoon streets, leaving behind the suppressed sobs of a heartbroken mother. Major Arihant Siksena, six foot tall, built like a rugby player, was scoping the small shack in the middle of the canola field as he lay prone under a copse of trees. He scratched his thick beard and then ran his hand over his clean-shaven head as he watched two men exit the wooden structure. The scrawny youngster with glasses, wearing a Metallica t-shirt and stone-washed jeans, looked around nervously before nodding to the tall, beefy man in a whiskey-brown jacket. The second man was clearly the muscle. The two of them scanned the surroundings but there was no way they could spot Arihant's camouflaged form. Arihant was wearing a green and khaki tactical ghillie suit that helped him merge with the shrubbery. The two men walked towards the bike parked underneath a flowering tree, still scanning their surroundings for threats. Arihant took photos of the men with the help of the camera lens integrated into his custom binoculars. The skinny dude climbed onto the rear seat as his bodyguard kick-started the bike. None the actual, the tangos are leaving. Shack looks empty, waiting for your directive. Arihan said into his throat mic, He received a response in his ear. Copy that. Arihant said, as he leapt up and cut through the canola crops in a combat prowl, the 9mm GSH-18 handgun extended forwards. An SR-3 compact assault rifle was slung across his back. But he did not envisage using it today. In fact, he was not intending to fire a single bullet today in the middle of this canola field in Satna, Madhya Pradesh. His training with the Russian Special Forces units of the Spetsnaz Gru in eastern Moscow, facilitated by the Indian Navy during his time with the Marine Commandos, had developed in him a preference for Russian manufactured weapons. The motorcycle's rumble was fading into the distance. He was tempted to send his mini-drone to probe the building, but given the lack of windows, he didn't want to waste his time. On the actual, I am moving to the door. Arihant reported as he advanced towards the door, scanning 360 degrees. He crouched and checked if there were any cameras covering the entrance from the eaves of the roof. But he couldn't find any. He stepped towards the door. Hmm, an old-fashioned lock, Arihant said, before pulling out a lock-picking kit from one of the pouches on his armoured vest which he wore over a black body-tight T-shirt. The lock didn't look sophisticated enough to be rigged with an alarm, so he played around with the small metal pin to open the door. Arihant hoped that beyond the door lay the answers to a mystery that had vexed Thrishul for quite some time. It was the automated messages that appeared on various popular forums in India, targeting young Indians that drew the attention of police cyber-cells across the country at first. Messages inviting young Indians from a certain caste persuasion to acknowledge their pure bloodline, the glory of their forefathers, and join the cause. Join the Aryan Conclave. Failing to track the source of the messages, the police cells referred the case to the intelligence agencies and it just so happened that Trishul, the shadowy black ops agency that Arihand worked for, thought the messaging linked them to a domestic terror group that they had been tracking for a few years now without much success. A group that had sent several young men to their deaths wearing suicide bomb vests. Their targets, progressives, journalists, NGOs, and officials working towards the upliftment of India's impoverished masses, particularly those opposed to caste-based discrimination. Thanks to the geniuses at the Defense Signals and Cyber Warfare Directorate, to be precise, the genius of white-hat hacker Officer Subarayan, also known as Super Subu, Thrashul was able to narrow down the shack in the middle of the canola farm as one of the sources of the automated propaganda messages. The presence of the two men in the building came as a surprise, but it confirmed Arihant's suspicion that this was not just any ordinary building housing farming equipment and fertilizers. The lock disengaged and Arihant opened the door slightly. Arihant pulled out an extendable rod with a small bendable mirror at the end of it and pushed it through the gap in the door to check for cameras or alarms. All he could see were a wooden table two tall service stacks, a computer, and an air conditioner. And on the actual, I'm stepping into the shack. Wish me luck, Arihant said. Arihant produced the E key, which was flat as an ATM card. It had a fat plug, like the ones you see on a USB, sticking out of one end of it. He pushed the metallic plug into one of the server tray ports. A console attached to the service stack came alive. The monitor displayed a green upload bar, which showed the speed and the rate of the data transfer. Do your thing, Nandi 1, Arihant said, this time addressing Officer Subrayan, who was in field for this mission. Arihant could imagine Super Subu seated inside the decked out Chinook H 47, the flying operations hub of Thrushul, they fondly called Nandi. He could visualize the glow of screens on his chubby face with its neatly trimmed goatee, his fingers racing over the keyboard, willing the e-key to work its magic and reel the encrypted information into the waiting arms of Threshul's data centers. Arihand listened to Subutro terms like linking in, extending the umbilical and decoupling the stack in his ears as he peered out through the narrow gap in the door. A gentle breeze was snaking its way through the yellow canvas of canola flowers. Arihant couldn't help but feel the irony of an evil enterprise being situated in the heart of such a beautiful place. Suddenly, instructions came via the radio asking Arihant to input several lines of code into one of the keyboards attached to the service stack. ''That okay?'' Arihant inquired. ''You the man, six energy. you the man! Download has begun!'' he heard say. ''Don't call me that. My call sign is Cobra,'' Arihant said, turning away from the equipment. Just as Arihant faced the door, a burly shape crashed through it and smashed into his chest, throwing him off balance. He fell backwards and landed on a rickety wooden table to the left of the server stack tower, breaking it in half. The handgun escaped his grip and skittered across the floor. The well-built thug and his skinny friend were back. Either he had tripped an invisible motion sensor Or Subu fucked up and the unauthorized access sent an alert. Or these two criminals had forgotten something and came back to grab it. It didn't matter. None of the reasons mattered. Danger was at hand and the problem had to be dealt with. Arihant cast a quick glance on the monitor. It showed that only 50% of the download was complete. Kill him! The bespectacled youngster said, pointing to Arihant. His muscly servant leapt on the major and dragged him up by his armoured vest. <laughs> Arihan kneed the man as he came up and the assailant let out a painful grunt. But he did not double over. Almost instantly, the goon sent an arcing hook with his left elbow that slammed into Arihan's jaw and rattled his brain. Arihant groaned in pain as he stumbled back. Then he came at the beefy man with a right-handed throat punch, but the attacker grabbed his wrist and tried to twist it to the left. Arihant had used the lazy strike as a bait. He launched a jab with his left hand that bloodied the man's nose. Then he kicked out with so much force, it sent his opponent flying into the youngster who didn't have time to move out of the way. Harihan heard a loud crunch as his opponent fell on top of his scrawny friend. The kid is not getting up anytime soon, Harihan thought. And he hoped they would both stay down for their own sakes. While it was in Trishul's remit to respond to lethal force with lethal force, they did not, as a matter of principle, engage in wanton murder. Because in most combat situations, they were pitted against Indian citizens. Most of them were traitorous criminals or misguided individuals who had committed a long list of sins that compromised the lives of their fellow citizens or the defense of their nation. But they were Indians nevertheless. So reactions in proportion to the action. When it came to foreign actors and hardened terrorists though, all bets were off. Arihant retrieved his handgun from underneath the ruined table. I have been compromised, on the actual... He said into his mic. The down man rose up and in a swift move pulled out a knife. Adihan looked at the gun in his own hand and then at the knife in his roaring attacker's hand. He smiled. He is going to have to keep this part out of the battle report that he filed at the end of the day. He was always getting in trouble for ignoring his training and taking too many risks. He had started liking the danger, the possibility of death, ever since the mission in Jaipur, the one he couldn't talk about. The precise details of which he wouldn't reveal to his superiors or the psychs who probed Trishul operatives regularly for signs of trauma and mental property. Some part of him wanted to die, but even stronger was the roaring determination inside him to slay the enemies of his nation. The conflicting feelings battled within his soul like gladiators and it manifested in the external world in the form of unnecessary risk-taking that could compromise the mission. Well, that was not entirely true. He was Major Arihant Saxena, one of the most decorated commandos in the Indian Armed Forces. He was forged in the flames of the dangerous combat missions he performed as a Marcos officer He was trained by the best the Indian military had to offer and learned from the best trainers and fellow ally soldiers in the specialist Russian spetsnaz brigades he worked with. His risks were designed to deliver perfect results, calibrated to achieve efficient outcomes. The raging man in the whiskey-colored jacket rushed at him. The knife raced up to deliver a downward strike. Arihant fended off two sweeps of the sharp weapon by blocking the man's wrist with his forearms. When a sweeping arc of the blade raced down towards his neck, Arihand weaved back before kicking the man's knee out to the side. The thug screamed and plunged the knife towards Arihan's heart, but the commander caught the knife-bearing hand by the wrist and twisted it. He yanked the compromised wrist to the right breaking it with a snap. Arihant grabbed the knife that slipped out of the man's injured hand and slammed its handle into the man's temple. The goon's eyes rolled up in his sockets, and he dropped like a sack of rocks. The key attached to the server stack chimed, indicating the download was complete. Arihant checked the screen to make sure it showed 100%. He heard a strained laugh from the floor. The young man with the broken spectacles was looking up at him with a twisted grin. His face a bloody mask, thanks to a broken nose. He held up his mobile phones and said, You got 10 seconds, dickhead! A beeping sound emerged from behind the server stack. Hunt had no time to drag the two men out of the building he leapt over the bodies on the ground and sprinted. He could hear the young man laughing as he cut through the ocean of yellow canola flowers at breakneck speed. Then. Reman Pandey shivered in fear as he sat between two thugs in ski masks in the back of a Mercedes van. The burly figures glared at him, their fingers restlessly rending the four leather seat covers. In the driver's seat, the man who was ostensibly their master examined the white file German had provided him moments ago. He was also wearing a ski mask. Occasionally, the driver looked out through the front window at the grove of trees, where shafts of light from the afternoon sun created a wonderland of light and shadows. Beautiful, isn't it? He remarked, before turning his attention to the document. It's all there, sir. All the details you wanted. No, please give me back my daughter, Demon said with folded hands. This is missing vital blueprints, the leader said disappointedly. What, sir? Uh, no, 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 that's not possible. That's not possible, Reman said, looking embarrassed. It's missing the blueprint for our favoured site, the leader said. But sir, that is not possible, sir. I got the right files from the secure vault, Reman said in a flustered tone. A chop, the man in the driver's seat said. He nodded at his assistants in the back seat. And the two thugs seated beside Reman started choking him. (coughs) If you don't bring me the prince in 24 hours, your daughter will be buried alive underneath those trees over there. Maybe your wife can join her too, the leader said. The thugs stopped choking Reman. The consultant coughed and spluttered with his hands around his neck and then took in big gulps of air. When he calmed down, the leader said to him, Did you understand my instructions? Yes, sir. It was a mistake, sir. I will find the blueprint, sir. I will go back and find it, no matter what the cost. I will bring it to you. Please don't do anything to my daughter, sir. Lemon said tearfully, the leader squeezed his eyes and rubbed it through the gap in his mask, before turning and looking at the grove again. Beautiful, isn't it? he said. Adihan sent round after round of solid punches into the sandbag, moving around it like an expert boxer, hunting his prey in the ring. but his breathing was off. His heart rate was too elevated for the amount of effort he was putting out. Arihan's body was fighting the bag, but his mind was fighting his demons. Alone, in the silence of an empty gym. Flashes of images from the mission in Jaipur sliced him up inside. His head throbbed. He gritted his teeth. He tried to put his rage into the sandbag, repeatedly, without a break, till the punches wore out the wraps and the skin on his knuckles were ruddy with blood. The face of the child. The face of the smiling assassin standing behind the child. No, 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 Arihant shouted. Big haymakers, devoid of accuracy, accompanied cries of frustration as Arihant ramped up the pace of his attack on the inanimate bag. He was winded. He stopped and pressed his fists into the side of his upper hips. He then looked at the still unopened bottle of whiskey atop a chair. The addiction from his previous life called out to him in seductive tones. Another demon he was trying to slay tonight. Arihan so badly wanted a drink, one little sip, no, just a drop. But he knew he couldn't stop if he went down that path. One drop wouldn't be enough. Two bottles at least to flush away the unbearable pain tearing at his mind. Arihan took in a deep breath, and prepared to land another flurry of strikes. The phone buzzed. He picked it up from beside the bottle, filled with the amber drug, and read the message. Briefing in two hours, Nandi awaits. Arihan placed the phone back on the chair, then he looked at the whiskey inside. A beat later, he picked it up with a roar and smashed it against the wall. <coughs> Kaisa was enduring the cruel machinations of the Nightmare, the same nightmare that had haunted her sleeping hours for the last five years. She was in the torture chamber in Morocco, that final mission she had participated in for Roe, where her identity was compromised and her colleagues were forced to throw her to the wolves to maintain the integrity of the wider mission. She was seated on a steel chair, her hands tied behind her back. The room was grey, featureless and cold. There were two men in there. The larger of the two was dressed in military fatigues and sported a Mexican lucha livre wrestler mask. He was the one who did all the hitting, the choking and the crushing of the fingertips with torturous tools of his trade. <coughs> he grunted like a pig and spoke in guttural tongues. The other man with the smooth voice was hidden in the shadows. An angel of darkness just beyond the halo of light offered by a lamp that hung from the roof. <coughs> he urged the torturer on, offering words of encouragement in his almost seductive voice. Yes, more of that, yes till she confesses that she's working for Raw, till she admits that the Indian government is trying to dig its nose into things that shouldn't concern it. We will be in that country soon enough, to transform its very identity. Why the hurry? Huh? Why? the man said. <coughs> the room echoed with Faeser's screams as the masked animal focused his attention on her breasts. No, not that tool. The other one. The man in the shadows had said to the punisher. (coughs) Pain. So much pain. Faisa wanted to die. If it looked like she was about to pass out, they would stop. They would feed her water. Splash some against her face to wake her up. And then they would start again. I know you, woman. I know you. As you are being carved up, You are revealing things about yourself that nobody will ever know. I know you and I will find out what you have secreted away in the hidden chambers of your mind. The man said. Feza was about to pass out again. The man in the lucha livre mask splashed a mug full of water against her face. The man in the shadows disengaged from the darkness and walked towards her. Her body riddled with bloody wounds, and her mind shattered to a thousand pieces. Pfizer's eyesight was a kaleidoscope of blurry images. The man with the silky voice appeared as Ravana, ten-headed, with no discernible features on his face. We are everywhere. How do you think we found out about you? One of your colleagues. The man cackled. You will not leave Morocco. Morocco the man said, before turning to the torturer, again. (coughs) Fez's phone chimed, and she leapt out of her bed with a scream. Rapid wheezing breaths whooshed out of her mouth as she took in her surroundings. She was in her hotel room in Bhopal. Many years ago, she had escaped the room. Escaped Morocco, saved by a legendary Trishul operator, who would later leave the service and disappear into the shadows. A man whose name was not spoken anymore. Faiza had left raw but she had decided to use her considerable skills to become an integral path of Thrashul. She had survived. She was a survivor. This is what she told herself every time she woke from the prison of her nightmares. She picked up her phone and accessed the message. It said, Briefing in two hours, Nandi awaits. The board above the ornate gates of the 40-acre ashram located in the outskirts of Pune reads, Sriman's Vedanta Society. Day and night, seven days a week, vehicles bearing students, devotees and scholars drove in and out of the grounds. The main paved road into the institution wound around tropical gardens featuring fountains spouting water onto the sculptures of rishis and mythical creatures. If the police raided the compound, they would only find meditation halls, libraries full of sacred texts, dormitories and lecture theatres. The place was squeaky clean. That was because they had eyes everywhere and they were forewarned. Even before the cameras triggered the alarm, the many traitors who the organization had ceded into law enforcement agencies around the country, would warn them of impending danger, giving them time to clean up their act. That is, if there was even a reason to suspect the activities in the compound. No one ever did. It was for all intents and purposes, one of the many thousands of religious centers dedicated to the study of India's religious traditions and philosophies. On this day on this hour the ashram's ground were free of the prying eyes of the outside world and the residents and guests were free to be themselves free to attend a most important gathering the assembly was organized inside a giant white dome in the hearts of the grounds an amphitheater which seated thousands was located inside the giant structure rows upon rows of white cushioned seats faced a raised platform stage. A group of musicians played Veena and Tabla from inside a hidden chamber to the left of the stage, greeting thousands of hooded figures in white robes who streamed in from the many entrances to the complex. They promptly seated themselves and waited in hushed reverence as an entourage of white-clad figures walked in a solemn procession towards the dais. One man detached from the group and climbed the short flight of stairs and stood atop the platform, looking upon his followers with pride. He wore a white silk robe covered in golden sigils that gave him an air of importance. His entire head was covered by a capirote, a pointy hood which featured eye slits and an opening for the mouth. His hooded followers formed a ring of protection around him. The audience murmured words of expectation the Grandmaster raised his hands to hush them. Venerable children of our most sacred bloodline, true heirs to the land of Aridesh, this ancient culture that our forefathers cultivated long before the rise of Hinduism, or Islam, or Christianity, or the many other faiths that reside on this land. This land that our ancestors laid claim to by sacrificing their blood. It truly belongs to us. It is a gift to us from the first Grandmaster who rode here from the plains of Central Asia, bringing with him the light of civilization. They might call themselves children of Parth or Indians. These people who live on our lands, these vermin who talk of their heritage that pales in comparison to our storied legacy. Let me tell you, my children, they know nothing. They don't realize that we have merely allowed them to settle these lands. They are serfs in our kingdom of light. The Grandmaster turned and pointed to the right, to an ancient tomb with leather bindings that was set on a plinth and surrounded by golden lamps. If your bloodline is not listed in that holiest of holy books, then you do not deserve to be the inheritors of this great landmass. If your family tree is not etched into the pages of that most sacred text, then you do not deserve to feast on its resources." The audience nodded. Time and the vagaries of history have wrenched the power out of our hands but we have been clawing it back over the decades. Our people are everywhere. We have infiltrated the very bones of this nation. We are in the halls of power, in its security apparatus, in its overflowing chambers of wealth. Yes, my children, we have the blood of conquerors flowing in our veins and we will get back what is truly ours. chamber erupted into noisy applause. The Grandmaster asked his delighted followers to settle down. To truly gain back the keys of this great kingdom, we must destabilize the engines of democracy that bring prosperity to the wretched souls who should be our slaves. We have been testing the strength of the fabric that cocoons this delicate egalitarian balance. We have been denting the pillars and cracking the foundations. Now we are ready, my children, to take an important step in the right direction. The crowd cheered and whooped in anticipation. The Grandmaster's entourage asked them to settle down. I know, I know, you have been waiting so long to hear me say this. The first step towards the most holiest of events is being undertaken as I speak. The day of days that will usher in the path to Pralaya will be upon us soon. The Grandmaster pulled out a small leather bound book from the pockets of his robe and held it up. "'Your mothers have told you the tale of the great apocalypse "'that will wipe out the heathens and help us inherit Aridesh. "'All the religions fighting amongst themselves in this country. (laughs) "'I cannot wait to see the look on their faces "'when our knife slips into their backs. "'I cannot wait for them to find out that it has been us all along, "'the authors of all the mistrust and hatred "'that has been poisoning their souls.' We will show them that they behaved the way they did, because they know no better. They are slaves. They think like slaves. We will offer them grace and the opportunity to worship at our feet. Those who don't comply will sink into the depths of River Ganga. Go share the news, my children. We will kick off the cycle of Pralaya in a matter of days. The Grand Master said, over the din of raucous celebrants, who threatened to bring the roof down with their jubilant cries, Commander Raman, 55, had a physique that belied her age. She ran her fingers through her greying bob cut as she paced behind Super Subu, who was analyzing information on multiple screens. The insights of the Chinook, which served as a mobile operations center for Thirshul, was adorned with maps, LED screens, computer terminals, streaming equipment and communication devices. Fondly called Nandi, the custom-fitted helicopter was the court of the commanding officer who lorded over both Arihant and Faiza. Usha Raman, whose radio call sign was Nandi Actual, looked to the entrance of the chopper, expecting to see her two officers step inside at any moment. She sighed impatiently. Subbu's glance flitted from screen to screen as he punched insert strings and tags that pulled data from multiple intelligence databases. He was comparing that information with the files Arihant had procured from the shack in the canola farm. Arihant made me late, Commander, Feza said as she stepped into the cabin, followed by Arihant, who looked unimpressed at the betrayal. Both of them were dressed in nondescript black uniform pants and shirts. I am not in the mood for jokes, Usheraman said. Arihant and Feza snapped a salute and then stood at attention in response to this statement. "'You two have done all right. Now let's see what Officer Subarayan can garner from the intelligence you have collected,' Usha said, her eyes boring into the back of Subu's head. "'Ah, yes, of course, these two get to blow up stuff in the field without scant regard for the integrity of the intelligence collected from the site.' then it's my burden to make heads or tail of the rubbish they drag in. I have to work with limited resources to look for needles in a haystack, Subbu said with a wry smile. He did not look up from his work as he lobbed these criticisms at the Threshul operatives. Less complaining, Officer Subbarayan, Usha said. Uh, Yes, ma'am, he responded promptly, inviting a chuckle from Fazer. "'Pretty sure your hacking session was compromised, bringing all that heat on me,' Arihant said. "'Hey, that was not me. My work was stellar as always. "'Besides, you are a big boy, and I am sure you took care of it without too much trouble.' Subu looked Arihant up and down to ensure he wasn't missing any body parts. "'Yep,' Arihant said wryly, still feeling the ache in his bones. From his fight with the jacketed thug. Usha gave Subu a stern look before turning her attention to one of the LED screens on the far side of the room, which featured satellite imagery. Feza took the opportunity to chide Subu further. <sighs> our enemies will conquer our nation by the time our colleague is done destroying the keyboard, she said. Yeah, yeah, keep angling for a reaction, Fazer, Subu said. It's Captain Fazer Khan to you, Boyo, FaZa said and poked a tongue at him. Subu smirked. I have got something here, Commander, Subu said as he slammed the enter key and sat back on his chair. Usha nodded to her two field agents, and the three of them huddled over Subu's screen, as he brought up relevant interfaces to present his case, Subu raised both his arms like a maestro about to conduct an orchestra and said, "We know from Lallan's confession that the consultant this organization was after was one Raman Pandey, a 45 years of age, married with a child, currently residing in Jabalpur." What is he doing in Jabalpur, Usharaman asked? His independent consultancy one that tended to manage several major infrastructure and civil works projects in the state. They have completed about 20 projects over the last few years and have eight more to deliver in the coming years, Subu said. phase aside, she did not like what she was hearing. I need a complete list of those projects. Already all it, boss, Subu said, pointing to a window where he had programmed a custom function found the data from government files he then brought up another window with a click of the mouse button now the e-key stole a lot of files that are heavily encrypted some of which i'm still trying to crack open but such is my genius that i have managed to open most of them that's the good news the bad news is that they are mostly junk files full of useless information and some tie the organization to the automated messages hitting the forums. But yeah, mostly it's crap, Subu said with a smile. I can feel a butt coming, followed by another bout of self-congratulatory nonsense, Feza said with a roll of her eyes. Spot on! Deep in the bowels of this file stash. I found a list of phone numbers with no names attached to it. Subhu said. Arihan leaned in with great interest. I pinged all of the numbers on that list along with Raman Pandey's number and guess what? Subhu said, maximising a window. It showed the network of roads and highways crisscrossing Madhya Pradesh and the mobile towers that serviced the state. A red dot and a green dot were travelling together on the highway to the outskirts of Jabalpur. Good lord, Faiza said. Subbu, dispatch local intelligence to Raman's house in Jabalpur. Put a call to the commissioner's office and issue a red alert for all the assets that Raman's consultancy has worked on. Give them the bare minimum details required to proceed with the operation. If anyone pulls rank or place up, patch them through to me. Usha instructed in a rapid-fire fashion. Then she turned to both Faisa and Arihant and said, Shoot up. An abandoned go-down in the outskirts of Jebelpur. Yes, it's all here. Everything we needed, the gang leader wearing the ski mask said. Rehman Pandey smiled and folded his palms together. I am glad, sir. The leader threw the files into an open duffel bag and turned his attention back to Remon. Now, my daughter, Reman said, pointing to the little girl seated behind the leader. She was gagged and bound to a steel chair. Her muffled screams filtered through a filthy rag stuffed into her mouth and filled Reman's heart with despair. What do you think, boys? The leader's muffled voice Directed the query to the two thugs positioned behind them and Pandey. They wore an identical pair of jeans and black tank tops that showcased their bulked up physique, a result of years of steroid abuse. One of the men nodded, while the other shook his head to indicate his displeasure at the suggestion.
1: What does everyone else
0: think? The leader lifted his head up to address the five gunmen with automatic rifles who patrolled the gantries above them. They did not respond. Finally, after what seemed like ages, the leader said, You have done well, Roman. I think you deserve your price. Faisa and Arihant were waiting outside the warehouse, kitted up in body armour, waiting for the go-ahead from Uma. Super Subbu had tracked both the demon pande and the unknown person of interest using the mobile towers and narrowed their location down to the abandoned go down. It was the site of an old garment processing factory. The warehouse was a squat structure featuring peeling blue paint, patches of rust, and vivid carpets of floral creepers. The afternoon sun blazed down on the abandoned bushland that surrounded the building. Insects filled the air with a trilling dissonant chorus of sounds that were unnerving. Adihan scanned the thermal signature inside the building using his specialized optical equipment. The people inside showed up as yellow and red clusters. On the actual, I am counting around ten plus individuals. Eight tangos. and Then maybe the package? Adihan said into his throat mic hoping for more clarity on what awaited them inside. Cobra one, that would be right. Intelligence just finished squeezing Raman's wife. He had to steal files from one of the government offices and offer it as a ransom to secure the release of his daughter, she said. Bastards, Feza muttered. Police have all the roads out of there blocked off, Uma added. Cobra 1 and Cobra 2, go do your thing. You are cleared for hot. Affirmative, Feza said as she led Arihand in a combat prowl towards one of the side doors that provided access into the building. Before I give you your heart's desire, Mr. Pandey, I thought it prudent to be honest and upfront with you, the leader said. I don't understand. Demon stammered. The information you gave me will make my employers very happy. I believe they wish to trigger an apocalypse with it. What do I care? <laughs> I just want to be paid, the leader said. Uh, uh, What? Raymond struggled to make sense of what he was hearing. I also want you to see my face, the leader said, taking his mask off. From within the mask emerged a handsome face featuring a crew cut, a thick moustache and a three-day-old stubble. The man's eyes were deep-set and they gleamed with malice. I am Jagdeep, and I am the man who will fulfill your desires. Saying this, Jagdeep reached behind and pulled out a long serrated knife. He quickly swept it across Raman's belly. Raman did not even feel the blade slice through his belly. But he started screaming in pain when a waterfall of thick, viscous red liquid spilled out of his tummy, followed by his intestine that spilled out like a knot of coiled snakes. The heartless goons laughed at the sight of the dying man. (laughs) Demond's daughter's muffled cries added to the cacophony. Finish the girl, Jagdeep instructed to the two men standing before him. The pop of flashbangs blinded the men and shocked their senses momentarily. This was followed by the deployment of smoke bombs that quickly reduced visibility. Guns barked and chaos descended on the go-down. Adihanth and Fazer scurried into the go-down guns blazing their specialist optics gave them an edge over the enemy who was blinded by the flashbangs and the smoke screen however they were immediately pinned by a volley of bullets delivered by the enemies positioned on the gantries given their location close to the roof their visibility had clearly improved after the initial shock and awe of the breaching tactics deployed by the threshul operatives. Arihant and Faiza returned fire at the gantries with trained precision. Tango down, Arihant said as he landed a headshot. Tango is out of action. Faiza said, as she too killed an enemy with a deadly bullet that tore through her Mark's torso. Two down, six left, Faiza counted. The tangos on the ground floor seemed to be hiding behind pillars and barricades of abandoned construction material. There was no time or opportunity to calibrate the thermal optical readers for the inside of the warehouse especially given the incessant firing and the distortions offered by the smoke which lingered. They would have to win the battleground inch by inch with lead and the legendary grit of Thrushul operators. The lead storm from the gantries ripped out chunks of concrete from around Arihant and Faiza and projectiles whisked past their bodies as the enemies redoubled their attack in response to the kill shots. Arihant and Faser found cover behind a large pillar as they continued strafing the gantries. The remaining three men at ceiling level, one on the left and two on the right, got on their knees and tried to catch the commandos in a crossfire. Bullets raked the pillar and dented and chipped the structure. Feza and Arihand waited patiently, till the sole operator on the left stopped to change magazines. The enemy combatant hadn't bothered to take cover, expecting his colleagues on the opposite side to cover him effectively. An amateur mistake for which he would pay dearly. Feza emerged from her cover, took a solid firing stance and ripped chunks of meat out of the man's body with three punishing shots. Tango is KO, Faeser said, returning to her cover. Arihant nodded at her and said, I will take out the guys on the gantry. You make for the package straight ahead. Faeser nodded. Arihant darted off to another pillar to get closer to his quarry. Faser covered his print, and once he was securely positioned behind the adjacent pillar, she turned with the intention of scanning ahead. She was greeted by the sight of two tangos rushing her, their machetes raised to deliver kill strikes. Staggered by the charge, Fazer did not register being shoved to the ground by the men till the force of the impact sent jolts of pain through her lower back. Arihant wanted to go to her aid, but a new shooter with a handgun located on the ground floor joined the two men in the gantry to corral him behind his cover using a precise firing pattern. There was nothing he could do to save Faiza. She was on her own. Before Faiza could bring up her rifle and fire, the bulked-up enemies in their tank tops and jeans pounced on her prone form and pulled the gun off her and flung it into the distance. The gun clattered away into a dark corner of the warehouse. The two muscled goons set upon Phaser with their knives, with the express intention of carving out chunks of her flesh. Ugh! Every time they brought down the knife, Feza expertly fended off or redirected their attacks, frustrating her enemies. Feza leapt up from a prone position to both her feet in the blink of an eye, surprising her assailants. She was smack bang in between the two goons. The men sent their blades arcing in her direction but Feza ducked and weaved before landing stinging sidekicks one after the other.
1: Yeah.
0: Her heel crashed into their bellies and stole their breaths. Uh. The men quickly recovered and returned to their frenzied attack, which saw them lashing at Feza's lithe form with furious swings of their blades. Uh. While most of these sweeps missed their mark, One sliced her uniform open, just above her left shoulder, and drew blood. Encouraged by this minor win, the men pushed forwards with berserker rage, pumping in their drug-saturated bloodstream. However, their increased enthusiasm played havoc with their balance. The man to the left of Faiza overstepped as he stabbed into her. Feza noted the unbalanced footing the man presented in an attempt to slay her. She sidestepped, then grabbed the arm that had thrust the knife in her direction. Feza somersaulted sideways, pulling the arm off its shoulder socket and breaking it in half. Ah! The man roared in pain as Feza's momentum flipped him backwards and made him airborne for a split second. The man's knife slipped out of his broken hand as he journeyed towards the floor. Like a viper striking out from its hidden lair, Feza latched onto the weapon and stabbed the man in the eye just as his back crashed onto the solid floor. Ah! The other man was furious at the death of his colleague. He rushed her with his knife drawn back for a killing blow only to experience a Muay Thai forward kick crash into his chest. He fell back with a jarring thud, but such was his anger towards Phaser, He shrugged off the pain, stood up, and pulled a small revolver from the back of his jeans. Die, bitch, he said before shooting Phaser point-blank in the chest. <laughs> the Kevlar on the combat vest absorbed the impact, but it felt like a horse had kicked her in the chest. Fezzer staggered back, breathing big gulps of air. Her training kicked in, and she focused on regaining her breath, even as the sharp pain hammered against the top half of her ribs. Her triumphant opponent swaggered up to her and began raising his gun towards her head with a cruel laugh. He was too slow. Feza pulled out the kerambit strapped to her thigh and threw it at the man's neck. The blade found its home with ease. (laughs) Ah! The goon held onto the blade's handle, goggle-eyed, as blood poured out of the wound and from the insides of his mouth. Who's laughing now? Feza said as the man's limp body slammed down onto the floor. Three attackers strafed Adihan's cover with a barrage of gunfire, and he felt helpless. A handgun bearer straight ahead peppered him with bullets randomly, while the rifles from the gantry chipped away at the pillar he was hiding behind. In desperation, Adihan lobbed the final flashbang over his shoulder, momentarily blinding and halting the gunman on the ground floor. Arihand focused his attention on the men on the gantry and sent a deadly batch of bullets in their direction. He was relieved when he felt a tap on his shoulder. Faizer had joined him. Clearly, she had finished off her enemies without any mercy. Arihand was not surprised. The woman was brutally efficient. They could only hope that the father and child hadn't been slayed in the crossfire. Faiza signaled that she was going to head straight ahead to retrieve the package and slay the lone gunman who had stopped firing since the flashbang was deployed. He might be hiding. Watch your back! Adihan shouted over the din of the bullets. Faiza nodded and signaled with a thumbs up. She pulled out her handgun and expressed her intention to move forward to Nandi Actual via her throat mic. Then she ran diagonally to acquire a new cover as Arihant prevented the two gunners on the gantry from targeting her. He could hear her footfalls as she darted ahead to complete the mission. Arihant got one of the assailants in the neck with a lucky shot, which was most likely a bullet that ricocheted blood spurted from the enemy's neck wound and poured out in rivulets as he slid down to the floor. Ah. The other combatant was enraged by the death of his comrade. He loaded a full clip into his rifle and walked down the steel steps that linked the gantry to the floor of the warehouse, firing his gun at full burst. There's no firing at him directly without risking a bullet. Arihan thought, However, he noticed a rusty light fixture positioned above the man as he descended the stairs. Arihant fired on its rickety attachment to the ceiling and brought it down crashing onto the man's head. While it did not injure his opponent, it gave Arihant a perfect moment of distraction to deliver a bullet through his head. Cobra one. I have one POI. The other is dead. One tango is on the run. Feza was saying into her mic as Adihant approached her from behind. His rifle pointed forward and scanning the interior of the warehouse. He saw that Feza was kneeling in front of a girl bound to a steel chair. The little one's eyes were wide with terror and fixed on her father's body. The poor man had been gutted mercilessly. Everything's going to be okay, darling. We are going to take you to mummy, Feza said to the child. Righteous anger rose in Arihan's chest. I am pursuing the tango, Arihan said through clenched teeth. No sooner had he said this, the sound of a dual-sport motorbike rang out from the back of the warehouse. Adi Hunt sprinted forwards, gun pointed at the source of the sound. The roaring vehicle jetted out of a storage shed in the back of the down. Its specialized dirt-racing tires and souped-up engine helped the bike speed through the bushland and escape the closing net of the surrounding police forces. The tract of wilderness stretched out for miles and there was no way Trishul or any other assets would be able to track the tango through the difficult terrain and thick foliage. Arihant cut across the warehouse floor, entered the shed and halted in front of the open sliding door. His eyes were fixed on the disturbance amongst the shrubs in the distance, caused by the speeding two-wheeler, which sped away, leaving a grey-and-white trail of exhaust fumes. (coughs) Feza had just removed the little girl's gag, and Arihand had to listen to the child's heart-rending scream. Pain and humiliation raked at his heart with sharp talons. He had failed. Drashul had failed. The Aryan conclave, that elusive organisation that was always one step ahead of them, had beaten them once again. Adihand sat on his haunches and rubbed his chest, as if the physical action would eliminate the distress he felt. He had let down phaser He had let down Usha and Trishul. He had let down his country. How he wished he could get a drink to banish the torment. Three months after the firefight in the go-down, The villagers danced and whooped in joy as they paraded their ancestral goddess in a beautifully decorated golden palanquin through the nighttime streets of Barwani. Women in stunning saris, their hands covered in silver bangles, clapped and sang as their saviour was guided to the temple pond for a ritual bath. Little children accompanied the jubilant procession, hooting and howling, some of the little ones played discordant tunes on musical instruments made from cheap plastic. The procession proceeded along the main street, decorated with thousands of colourful light bulbs. Street food carts and pop-up stalls selling glass jewellery and clothes and candy lined both sides of the path. The stallkeepers stopped trading and bowed in respect as the parade passed them. A band played devotional tunes on traditional drums and wind instruments and urged the throng to speed along the pathway that snaked towards the sacred pond. When they reached the steps that led to the pond, the bearers raised three loud cheers before leaping into the water body along with the palanquin. Praise be to the goddess! The crowd shouted again and again, before initiating the next part of the tradition a man dressed in a white full sleeve shirt and grey pants stood underneath a tree in the distance, eagerly observing the ceremony at the sacred pond. He ran his fingers through his thinning, prematurely grey hair as he watched on in delight as the villagers walked down the steps and drank palmfuls of water from the pool. He smiled. Every time a villager made the trip to collect a mouthful, his smile grew wider. He looked at his watch. Four more hours and the toxin would work its way through their system and offer them eternal peace and quiet. The results would no doubt please his masters. When they test the water tomorrow, there will be no traces of Noxovat in it. A midday news bulletin will report the freakish incident a mysterious illness that claimed the lives of the villagers of Barwani it would make the rounds on social media for a few days then the new cycle would offer something else clickbaity and Barwani and its body bags would be forgotten perfect the man thought Three months had passed since the incident in the godown. The paramilitary forces and the police guarding the sites Raman Pandey's consultancy had worked on had grown bored. The threats predicted by Trishul had not materialized from the ether. This drew the ire of the Ministry of Defense. The Ministry funded Trishul's operations gave them the influence and power to draw on local and national intelligence and law and order resources. They didn't like their precious generosity being misused for flights of fantasy. Usha was dragged into many a meeting where the powers-to-be gave her an honest account of their displeasure at Trishul's failure. However, officers sympathetic to Trishul had argued that perhaps the firefight and the go-down and their intelligence gathering had managed to neutralize the threat and forced the enemies underground. The heads of intelligence agencies, who were eternally jealous of Usha's achievements and Trishul's license to kill, had a different take on it. They saw the organization as a liability and at worse, a vestigial apparatus that spun fabulous tales based on half-baked human and signal intelligence. You couldn't argue with some of their assertions. A low-grade terror unit blackmailing a rich consultant, a bunch of casteist zealots posting pseudo-religious pamphlets on internet forums, and a government deep-cover agency desperate to justify its existence. Sounded like the script of a Bollywood movie. Usha had walked out of the meetings flustered and determined to throw in the towel. But her instinct told her there was something to it. The Aryan Conclave had stepped up its terrorist activities over the last decade. They were testing, they were building up to something bigger. Her analysis of the intelligence they had gathered and the recent incidents told her something terrible was afoot. She decided to wait and scan the daily briefings to see if anything piqued her interest. Three months later, when initial reports about the death of hundred and twenty villagers after a night of religious festivities landed on her desk at five a.m. in the morning, she acted without hesitation. She directed Arihantan Faser to attend to the disaster zone with the second wave of responders. Alarm bells were ringing for the experienced field commander. She only hoped Trishul could respond in time to quash the invisible looming danger. <laughs> Arihant was at the wheel and Faiza was looking through a file containing initial reports of the Barwani incident as they drove towards the village. The Land Rover barely registered potholes on the road as Arihand gunned the engine to get to their destination in record time. I heard you pacing in your room all night long, Faiza said, looking up from the file she was reading. They had slept in adjacent rooms at the hotel in Indore. Arihant didn't look at her. His grip on the steering wheel tightened. I am proud of you, you know, Faiza said, referring to his heroic efforts to fight alcoholism. Arihant cleared his throat, but said nothing. You can talk to me, Faiza began saying. Arihant interrupted by saying, I heard you scream in your sleep last night. Several times. Feza looked away and out of the windows at the bobbing heads of the sun-kissed flowers in the surrounding fields. She thumbed her mobile phone and played the live feed streaming from the cameras of the first operators at Barwani who were documenting the situation on the ground. The clip showed rows of dead bodies lined up on the banks of the temple pond. Some of the cadavers were being zipped up in body bags and carted away in ambulances. We don't know if the Ardian conclave has anything to do with this. Arihant piped up. We don't even know if the mercenaries we encountered at the warehouse had anything to do with them. They were guns for hire. They served devious masters of all colors and shades and ideologies. They could be servicing the jihadis, the naxalites, any of those assholes. ''Well, Lallan,'' Feza began to say. ''No offence, but the intelligence from that rendition was pretty loose. Lallan knew he was selling information on Pandey, but didn't know exactly who he was selling it to. He thought it was most likely the Aden Conclave.'' Adihan said. ''I think Subbu's analysis of the online chatter was solid. I think we made a good call,'' Feza said. ''You think?'' Adiant said incredulously, I want you to trust my hunch. I want you to trust Usha's feelings on this matter. Subu thinks this is the closest we have come to nailing these fiends. Feza proffered. The Aden Conclave has evaded us for so long. Every time we get close to them, they vanish and they leave behind a trail of. Adihant didn't complete the sentence. He slammed his hands on the steering wheel, his face a mask of pain. You are thinking about the little girl, Reman's daughter. You want justice for her, Fazer said, touching Erihan's forearm. She could see that he was trying damned hard not to shed tears. You so badly want this to be the idea Conclave, so we can extract some righteous justice. You fear this would be a dead end as well? Faizu continued. Adihan watched the road ahead with intense eyes. He stayed silent for a long time before saying, I think we will grab these bastards this time round. When Arihant and Fazer reached the village, they parked the Land Rover underneath a banyan tree and walked towards the medical professionals and police thronging around the site of the tragedy. The media were being held at bay some half a kilometre away at the entrance to the village. The news proper hadn't hit the headlines yet, even though rumours were already saturating the airwaves. Talk of yet another mysterious mass poisoning event in the country. What was it this time? Incorrect usage of pesticides? Toxic chemicals deployed by the council to rid the village of mosquitoes? Social media commentary ranged from lamentations on the state of the country to discussions about how the Illuminati might be trying to destabilize India. The Trishul operatives flashed their doctored Central Infectious Disease Control Institute badges at the police and slipped past the cordon towards the section where the bodies were arrayed in neat rows. They were being loaded onto private ambulances that waited in a queue, transforming the paddock into a morbid taxi rank. Feza bit down a sob as she saw smaller body bags interspersed amongst the adult ones. An elderly gentleman dressed in a traditional kurta and pyjama and a colourful turban stood out like a floral bouquet amongst an ocean of khakis, combat fatigues and men in hazmat suits. He was talking to a scientist in white overalls when Arihant and Fazer joined them. The scientist, a man in his thirties with a balding hairline and sour face, looked at their badges and then at their faces before nodding politely. We are just here as observers, we don't want to interrupt your work," Adihanth assured the man, whose name badge identified him as a toxicologist. As I was telling the serpent, the autopsy being conducted at the district hospital and the samples of water which will reach the central labs in about three hours should give us a clearer picture of what we are dealing with here," the scientist said. In your professional opinion, Results pending, of course. Would you say that this was a mass poisoning event? Faiza asked him. Most certainly, the man said, before letting out a sigh. I have to collect some additional samples, but hit me up if you need anything. The man said before turning and rushing off to join a female colleague carrying a notepad and a plastic tray filled with pipettes and vials. Namaste. The well-dressed serpent a gaunt man in his sixties with a patrician face, said to the Trishul operatives, Thank you all for coming and aiding us in this grave hour. The man stared at the dead bodies and said, I know you can't raise the dead, but maybe you can find out who did this to us. Did anyone? Arihan began asking. The Sarpanch shook his head. No one who dragged the water from the pond survived. I was organizing the fireworks when the ceremony took place. The goddess spared this old man's life. Why though? So many younglings perished. For what? We are sorry for your loss, Fezzer said tearfully. No, no, like I said, the government officials have been wonderful. In fact, I was really surprised that a man was here within minutes of my first call to the police. In fact, he got here even before the police, the Sarpanch said. <laughs> Just one man? Faizer asked suspiciously. Yes, he said he was from a central lab, the Sarpanch said, peering at Arihan's badge. Maybe even your institution. I can't remember exactly what he said. What was he doing? Arihan inquired in a concerned voice. He took samples of the water and the vegetation around the pond. He also checked the dead bodies, the serpent said. Where is he now? Faiza asked urgently. The serpent scanned the crowd back and forth. After a while he said, I cannot see him here, but oh, there is his red jeep leaving now. Arihant and Faisa looked at where the old man was pointing. A red maruti gypsy was entering one of the side roads that led up a mountain track in the distance. Where does that road lead to? Arihant asked. It joins up with the highway. A good way to go into town if you don't want to travel through the village, the serpent said. Let's go, Arihant said. Faisa and Arihant sprinted towards their land rover and gave chase. Vivek Malhotra, a former disgraced scientist from the National Serum Institute, now one of the champions of the Indian conclave, looked fondly at the tall blue rectangular container bouncing on the passenger seat of his red Marathi gypsy. The case was doing an awesome job of protecting the samples from the temple pond and the dead bodies that lay on the banks of that soiled water body. In ancient times, Warriors would return to their masters bearing the severed heads of their enemies to display their martial prowess. Vivek had slides and vials that would show the grandmaster that he was right in placing his faith in him, a privilege that his former employers, the government of India, had not extended to him when he manipulated data from drug trials to facilitate the early deployment of a drug, all for the greater good. They could not see his greatness. Only a great man had the fortitude to sacrifice the life of a few for the benefit of many. Damn the protocols when the lives of millions are at stake. The security staff that saluted him every day threw him out of his lab. He was arrested and paraded in front of his leering neighbors, He was trashed by newspapers and TV channels, day and night. The vultures and hyenas belched in satisfaction after they had stripped him clean of his reputation and professional achievements. That travesty of justice was a fading memory now. Noxovat, his baby, his most glorious invention, had exceeded all expectations instead of taking four hours to act it had killed those who had consumed it in a couple of hours just before he jumped into the gypsy he had called his handlers and asked them to proceed with the deployment the experiment was a grand success it was time to kick off the cycle of pralaya to think that his genius would usher in the cataclysm that would alter the destiny of the country and democratic institutions that spat on his intellect. Grandmaster was right, as always. The vermin in the village, whose bloodlines were undeserving of mention in the pages of the Book of Books, were collateral damage in a grand experiment. Pralea would separate right from wrong, the pure from the inferior, The mighty from the weak. The Grandmaster had told him that this country hated the purity of his blood, loathed his superior heritage. Democracy was a scheme to drag down those who deserved to be elevated into the mire of stinking masses. He chose to rise above it. He chose to champion the conclave's righteous crusade. He looked at the container again proudly, like a parent bringing a newborn baby home for the first time. His position would be further elevated once he researched the samples to create a superior, faster-acting variant of Noxovat. Something that would ruin the bodies of its victims in minutes, not hours. It might take him a few months, but it would be a perfect weapon to usher in the final days of Pralaya. Maybe he could disseminate Noxovat into the polluted air of this country's busy cities using aerosol sprays strapped to explosives, he thought with a smile. The looming form of the Land Rover came out of nowhere and sideswiped the gypsy. The deafening, jarring crash caused Vivek to crack the steering too far to the left causing the vehicle to roll and tip onto its left side panel. Vivek's head was banged up and the shattered glass was embedded in his face. His right shoulder had popped out of its socket and stabbing pain radiated out of the spot. He let out a cry of pain as he tried to make sense of what had just happened. Someone kicked in the remnants of the shattered windscreen and dragged him out of his jeep. Jagged peaks of broken glass raked his skin and dug grooves into his flesh, as strong hands lifted him up by the collar. A bearded face with a clean-shaven head looked at him with eyes that burned with anger. A woman who looked like a chiseled warrior leaned against the crumpled front bender of the Land Rover, smiling at him. Going somewhere in a hurry? Adihanth asked him. Vivek flapped his legs around and slapped the soldier's arms pathetically. He looked like a helpless bird with broken wings. The woman looked into the damaged cabin of the vehicle and said, I see a box full of vials and slights. This ought to be interesting, Cobra One. I'm not going to tell you anything, Vivek said through his bloody mouth. You are not going to last five minutes, Adihant said. You don't have faith like I do. You are the dogs of the military machinery of this rotten country, Vivek said. So you know of us, Arihant said. We know everything. The Aydin conclave is everywhere, Vivek said. Arihant shot a look at Phaser and placed Vivek back on the ground. That's a good start, my man. You will sing like a nightingale. You will tell us about what the conclave is planning with that poison you used to kill those innocent villagers. Adihan said, his hands tightening their grip on Vivek's collar. Nothing can stop Pralaya, Vivek said, roaring with laughter. Bloody droplets of spittle flying everywhere. No sooner had he said this, a bullet tore through Vivek Malhotra's head, turning it into a mass of ragged flesh and shattered bones. Hot crimson blood and brain matter splashed against Arihan's face. Arihan dropped the dead body and pulled Phaser down to the ground. "Shoot her," he said. Birds, frightened by the loud shout, were cawing in fear and beating their wings in a frenzy as they fled from the surrounding trees en masse. The Trishul operatives listened keenly for any sounds that might give away the position of the attacker. They were shielded by the fallen vehicle, but the shooter could flank them at any moment. Can you get the drone? Irihan asked Phaser. She nodded and crawled towards the Land Rover on her belly, before opening the side door and collecting a canvas bag from the back seat. She crawled back to Erie who was peering around the corner carefully to see if he could spot the shooter. Fazer extracted the 100mm long PD-100 drone, which looked like an obese dragonfly, and launched it into the air. The nano UAV buzzed away into the sky, following the directions of the controlling unit, commandeered by Phaser. The screen showed her an aerial view of the surroundings, as seen through the surveillance cameras concealed within the drone's nose. The thick foliage that covered the terrain made it impossible to spot the Tango, but after a while, she saw movement in the distance someone was running away from the spot after having successfully completed their mission. Feza looked at Adihand gravely and shook her head. Jagdeep The man who had thwarted Trishul's warehouse assault, the hide-killer who slayed Pandey and delivered crucial documents to his paymasters, smiled as he ran. The Dragunov sniper rifle, slung across his back, bounced against his muscles as he leapt over fallen tree trunks, crossed tiny streams, and raced through the woods. He looked up briefly, sensing the roving eyes of the drone that he knew Trishul would send after him. But he did not fear for his life, not even for a second. The woodland would shield him from violent retributions and mask his presence. There was no way they could trail him for more than a kilometer and a half with such a tiny UAV without losing their data link with it. Plus, he had a head start on them. There was no doubt about it. He had won again, triumphed against the war dogs his paymasters had called Trishul. Fools, Jigdeep muttered as he poured through a thick veil of shrubs and creepers. Shit, 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 Harihant mouthed as he checked the pockets of Vivek Malhotra's corpse. He found keys, a pen, a damaged burner phone, and a small leather-bound book. The Hindi text was crafted in ink on vellum and gilded by a golden border. It looked like the posh collector's edition of a holy book, manufactured by a specialist publisher. "I hope to God this is useful, Faiza," Arihan said in a voice laced with frustration. I hope so too, Faiza said. Somewhere within Sriman's Vedanta Society in Pune is a building shaped like a lotus flower in full bloom. Richly appointed trimmings such as velvet cushions, ruby red carpets and gilded timber furniture showcased the power and wealth of its occupants. This was the headquarters of the Aydin Conclave, where their esteemed leaders gathered to make critical decisions. Peacocks grazed in the lush gardens surrounding the edifice, as the Grandmaster and his entourage walked through the cloistered passageways on their way to the main conference room. The Grandmaster was not wearing his capirote, but he was swathed in his usual uniform an off-white silk robe embroidered with golden motifs. He was clean-shaven, and his piercing green eyes captured the attention of those who gazed at his face. A noble strength radiated from his toned body as he strode forth to his intended destination. The Grandmaster stopped to greet a devotee dressed in white robes. Standing next to him were his children, two young boys. The Grandmaster blessed the father by laying a hand on his forehead. Then he turned his attention to the children. Did Baba show you the name of your family written in our holy book? The boys nodded enthusiastically, bright smiles gracing their cherubic faces. The father joined his palms together in devotion. Tears streamed down his face as he watched the Grandmaster interacting with his children these little soldiers, with pure blood in their veins, will make us proud one day. Of that, I have no doubt. The Grandmaster said, slapping their rosy cheeks lovingly. A lanky man with a mop of curly hair that cascaded over his shoulders, stepped out from behind one of the ornately designed columns. He was dressed in black fatigues and carried a handgun holstered on his left thigh. He approached the group hesitantly, his eyes fixed on the Grandmaster. The Grandmaster lifted his eyes and considered the new arrival dispassionately. He nodded and said to the father and the children, Here is a father who is proud of his brave son, who martyred himself for our organization. To be pure of blood, to have your family's name in the book of lineages, also means that you may be called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice. And those who do will be exalted forever. The new arrival blinked sadly at the children. I hope, my dear children, your father will show the same devotion Anshuman here showed in committing his only child to our cause. The Grandmaster said as he walked away from the family, he grabbed onto Anshuman's shoulder and urged him to walk beside him. You know I want this. I want to be a part of this mission. I want to avenge the death of my son. Anshuman, who was the father of the teenager killed in the explosion that nearly felt Arihand in the canola fields, said with quivering lips, Why do you think I asked you to come? The Grandmaster said. Anshaman bowed his head and followed along, as the entourage entered a conference hall. Compared to the ostentatious appointment of the rest of the building, the appearance of the conference room was starkly austere. It was painted grey, illuminated by strip lighting and featured several flat-screen TVs bolted onto the walls. A long oval table fitted with microphones and touchscreen panels sat in the middle of the low ceiling to rectangular room. Men wearing tall caperotes and white robes stood up from their leather chairs around the conference table to show respect to their leader. One man, however, did not stand up. His bulky form swathed in military fatigues did not so much as shift as he watched the Grandmaster take his seat at the head of the table. He rested his chin over his steepled fingers and inspected the proceedings with an air of malice. The masked heads in the room turned and glared at him angrily at his defiance. One of the attendants in the room, dressed in white kurta, approached the Grandmaster and whispered something into his ear. Ah, here is the man who has scored some major wins. Welcome, welcome, the Grandmaster remarked. Jagdeep nodded once and smiled smugly. You have impressed me with your antics. You expertly extracted information from Raman Pandey and escaped the clutches of those hounds from Trishul. Also, I was briefed today that you offered mercy to our brother of science, Vivek Malhotra, prevented him from falling into the hands of the same vermin. For this, you have my thanks and the gratitude of the organization. The eyes that had previously glared at him in rage now rested in heads that bowed in his direction. You have paid me well for my services. The more you pay, the more impressive I become, Jagdeep said. The Grandmaster smiled at this comment before clapping loudly to draw his attendant's attention. The steward in the White Kurta acknowledged this gesture with a deep bow. He approached a niche in the wall, picked up a golden bell and rang it three times. He uttered mantras to bless those who were present before declaring the meeting open. The Grandmaster looked at each person in attendance before delivering his instructions. While we wake, blessed be his pure soul has been eliminated. Our samples are now in the hands of our enemies. To be specific, Trishul now has an important part of the puzzle they have been trying to put together for a long time. We must move forward under the assumption that Noxovat will be detected in no time and remedies will be concocted to protect Indians from its deadly effects. So it is of utmost importance that we initiate pralaya. The attendees nodded their approval at this statement. The grandmaster continued. This shouldn't be an issue given how well prepared we are. We always knew the timeline might change. The grandmaster turned to a fat man in a capiroteena robe that was too tight for his frame and inquired, Are the children ready? Yes, exalted one. The man responded enthusiastically. The grandmaster turned to Anshuman, who was standing at attention beside him and said, "'You will operate under Jagdeep's command "'at Primary Site Alpha. "'I expect the mission to be completed "'in a matter of hours "'before Threshul comes sniffing.' "'Anshuman knelt and touched "'the Grandmaster's feet. "'Thank you, my master. "'You will have your revenge, my son, "'by lighting the fuse "'that will initiate Pralea. "'If we get this right,' Our campaign over the next two years to reduce this country to rubble and take our rightful place as its heirs and rebuild it in our image will come to fruition. So do not fail me. Anshiman nodded wordlessly. Hate and determination burned in his eyes like hot embers. The Grand Master turned to Jagatip, who was looking at his mobile screen, and said Ten million dollars deposited in your account. Just as promised. Now go and win my war for me. You have my thanks, Grandmaster, and my expertise, Jagdeep said respectfully. It is time then, the Grandmaster said. One of the Iron Conclave members tapped the touchscreen panel on the conference table and activated the screens around the room. Which broadcast news feeds from various national TV channels. Let the carnage begin, the Grand Master said as he leaned in to watch the scenes of destruction from Indore. Indore, the most populous and the largest city in the state of Madhya Pradesh, woke to another glorious spring day oblivious to the tragedy that awaited its citizens. Three hours after the Grand Master of the Aydin Conclave had ordered the beginning of Pralaya, four five-man gun teams, trained by the nefarious organization, emerged from omnivans with fake number plates at various locations around the city. The afternoon sun highlighted their balaclava-clad forms and deadly AK-47s. Two teams stormed the IIT and IIM campuses, mercilessly mowing down students and faculty members in cloistered corridors, classrooms that were buzzing with discussions, and the almost sacred silence of the computer labs. bullet holes adorned the facade of these institutions of learning. Murals depicting our nation's greatest scientific and economic achievements were now coated in the blood and brain matter of some of India's brightest minds. One of the teams hid the crowded streets of Sarafa Bazaar where bargain hunters were torn to shreds by bullets that braked the streets and pulverized shop fronts selling textiles, electronics and specialty goods. (laughs) Crimson rivulets mixed with mud graced the footpath, and the dead and the dying were littered like detritus on narrow streets waiting to be cleared up by the cleaners during their evening shift. At the local food court, innocent men, women and children snacking on poha and other delicious snacks were pulped to unrecognisable chunks of meat as concentrated bursts of fire were unleashed on lunchtime crowds. The final fire team engaged in unimaginable acts of butchery at the Blue Water Park in the outskirts of the city. Parents herding their children through school vacation throngs were caught unawares when gunmen descended on the water park. What people initially thought was a fireworks display revealed itself to be the merciless rattling of automatic weapons that slayed scores in a matter of minutes. Small cohorts of poorly armed police, security guards and brave citizens mounted a fierce fight back at all the locations. But their attempts were in vain as the terrorists, driven by a drug-induced berserker rage, swept aside any opposition to fulfil their final mission. Some individuals discovered hiding places for their family members or took bullets to their torso while shielding their children. Crowds fleeing for their lives trampled on those who fell, and those who were not fast enough caught bullets in their heads and backs. By the time paramilitary reserve forces arrived, accompanied by additional battalions of police, the massacre had halted and the Aydin conclave killers were holed up in hotels, offices, malls and homes prepping for a suicide mission to take as many people down with them as possible when law enforcement came knocking. Nandi, the flying HQ of Trishul, sat on the tamac of a heavily guarded and cordoned-off section of Devi Bai Holkar Airport. Its sun-baked exterior hid the hectic activity within, as Super Subhu, Usha, Adihanth and Faiza raced to work out the Aydin Conclave's mysterious agenda. Their inquiry was along three lines. 1. Vivek Malhotra, his immediate contacts, his movements and interactions. The damaged burner phone, the GPS and the wrecked Marathi Gypsy and camera footage across the state were being processed by local intelligence to shed light on the disgraced scientists' iron conclave links. 2. The samples from the crashed gypsy were sent to the Central Toxicology Lab to unravel its Pandora's box of secrets. The dispatch included a note from the Department of Defense to expedite the production of an antidote to save lives should the poison be deployed elsewhere. 3. An analysis of possible staging areas for a poisoning event in Madhya Pradesh particularly locations where civil works were planned and executed by the deceased Raman Pandey's consultancy and construction firm. There is a red alert in place at all sites in MP that are already being guarded, thanks to our previous warning. But we need to narrow down a location, Commander Usher said, gazing at the screen that Subbu was working on. What if there are multiple sites? Adihant asked. That's a possibility. Feza said, I have identified five sites that are vulnerable to poison attack, five pregnable points in the water supply chain where toxins can be introduced to compromise the system and kill thousands. They are all guarded at the moment though, Subbu said. Even the talented computer whiz was not in a jovial mood today as Trishul wrestled with various lines of inquiry that might lead them to their enemy. What if they're aiming for a different city in a different state? They're, after all, a pan-Indian terror group. Arihant questioned. What does the intelligence tell you? What patterns do they reveal? Why have they deployed so many local assets and used so many local resources? Usha said. Also, Raman Pandey's consultancy was specifically floated to access the MP Rising Infrastructure Fund. The fact that they were interested in his projects, also bolsters that argument. phaser added. Okay, I buy it, Arihan said. What the... Suba blurted as he stared at his screen in horror. He picked up a remote beside his monitor and flicked on the TV. Commander, he said, directing Usha's attention to the same. The entire Thrasul team looked on in disbelief at the scenes of carnage being broadcast from indore cctv footage of crowds being massacred by balaclava clad men shots of people cowering in fear behind concrete structures gunfights raging between terrorists and the police and paramilitary forces my god faiza exclaimed <phone rings> usha's mobile rang she stepped away to take the call privately Arihan then faiza Shared concerned looks. Subu wiped tears as the television beamed images of dead bodies lying in it on the street of one of the cleanest cities in India. The heart-rending scenes of children wailing over the still forms of their parents was enough to melt even the hardest hearts. Usha thumbed off the mobile and said, The NSG are being deployed. We have been asked to support them. You know this is a distraction. The true game is being played elsewhere, Faiza said. But where? Look at these apocalyptic scenes. This might have been their goal all along, Arihan said. Wait, Faiza suddenly said. You said apocalyptic. Apocalyptic? Pralaya, dissolution. What did Vivek say when we questioned him before he was shot? Um... He said, um, he said, Arihan muttered. The hulking commando paced the cabin, trying to remember. Nothing can stop Pralea, he shouted. Yes, Faiza said, clicking her fingers. She turned to Subbu and said, Did you scan the holy book we extracted from Vivek's corpse? Yes, many hours ago. And I told you, it is full of the usual pseudo-religious gibberish we find in the Aiden Conclave PDF pamphlets online. Subu said. Search for the keyword pralaya, Feza said, looking over Subu's shoulder at his computer screen. The search term brought up several passages from the book. Usha meanwhile took another quick call and hung up and said They will call me in five and advise the deployment zone. Faisal nodded and continued to scan the passages highlighted by the search program as Subhu scrolled through the selections. Stop, Faisal said. Check this out. The final act of cleansing, the first sacred steps towards Pralaya, the dissolution of the old and the rebirth of the new will begin in Jalud on the banks of Man Narmada. Faisal read from the screen. What is in Jalud? Arihan then quiet. Demon's consultancy procured solar power panels and upgraded the pumps for the site last year, Subu said. And that just happens to be the holy site from where Aden Conclave will begin its apocalyptic campaign of terror to cleanse the unworthy. Feza said, stepping back involuntarily. Deep concern was writ large on her face. That's where we need to be. The NSG can handle what's happening in the city, Feza said, determination shining on her face. I agree, Arihan said. We must stop them, commander. (coughs) Usha's mobile rang persistently, but she didn't pick up the call. (coughs) The whole team looked at her distinguished face in anticipation. Well, you are not going by yourself, she said with a smile. By the time the AW-139 chopper dropped off Anshuman and Jagdeep at Primary Site Alpha, the Jalud water treatment plant, the site was in the hands of Aden Conclave's goons. It was a two-hour drive from Indore city to Jalud. A 1500-kilometer network of pipes fanning out of the site supplied treated water to thousands of homes and businesses in the city and the wider region. Iron Conclave sleeper cells had infiltrated the catering company that provided food for the paramilitary forces and police officers who guarded the site and poisoned their lunches.
1: <coughs>
0: they had died in agony. Snow-white foam had bubbled out of their mouths while rivulets of blood had poured out of their eyes, nose, and ears. <coughs> They screamed the names of their loved ones as their killers strolled into the compound to examine their dastardly handiwork. They disposed of the bodies unceremoniously into a mass grave before Jagdeep and Anshuman arrived. Jagdeep was wearing an outfit resembling the uniforms of Indian Black Cat Commandos, complete with a bandana around his head. While Anshuman wore a grey tank top, a fitted bulletproof vest over it, and a blue jeans with custom pockets for magazines. The thugs on site saluted Jagdeep and Anshuman as they entered via the main gates. The two men inspected the site and the defensive arrangements organised by their underlings. The gates of the pumping station compound opened up to a wide tiled pathway which led to three narrow metal bridges that cut across a large tank which was the site of a European football field. Solar panels floating on the surface of the water body powered the station with green energy. The bridges provided access to the entrance of the pumping station, which was a squat rectangular building. A cylindrical reservoir tank on four metal beams towered over the building and cast a shadow on the inlet pipes that drew water from the Narmada. The sound of the water pumps thrumming within the building was a ceaseless and ominous background score. Jagdeep's five-man team of mercenaries and 15 Iden conclave operatives, all of them dressed in black fatigues, had set up sandbag barricades at the entrance of the pumping station building to craft defensive firing positions. One of the iron conclave goons climbed up the water tower behind the building and set up a sniper position. Has the stuff arrived? Jigdeep asked. The truck will be here in five minutes, boss, one of the men said. Let me know as soon as it arrives, Jigdeep said. They proceeded inside and gazed at the massive machinery within. Pipes and pumps hummed intensely as water sloshed and churned inside mini-tanks and medium-sized wells. Anshuman, who seemed to be mimicking Sylvester Stallone in First Blood, scratched his week-long stubble with the tip of a bowie knife. Jagdeep stared at the rows of healed slashes on Anshuman's forearms, like pencil marks made on a wall to count down to a special day. Anshuman noticed Jagdeep examining the scars and said, I have been a killer for the Aryan conclave for decades. Each mark is a successful kill. He tapped the flat part of his blade on a relatively clear section of his forearm and said, I have reserved a special spot for the Trishul dogs who took my son away from me. Jagdeep scoffed at this response. I don't understand what the Grandmaster sees in you. I don't understand why you are leading this mission when you are not a believer. When you don't care about the course. Anshiman said, You're right. I don't care about the course. I don't believe in shit. I crave the smell of stacks of currency notes. Jagdeep said, I can tell you haven't felt the pain of watching the less deserving steal opportunities that should have come to you, purely through reservation. You haven't had your ancestral wealth stolen from you by courts, so that it can be shared with the thieving masses. My son was fighting these injustices under the banner of our sacred brotherhood, and he was killed like an animal. There was nothing left of his beautiful body. My poor boy, Anshuman said. I heard about what happened to your son, Jagdeep said before invading Anshuman's personal space and boring his gaze into his partner's eyes. Truth be told, I don't care. Just don't do anything stupid that can compromise my payday. I will deploy the Noxavat as soon as it arrives and leave you to defend this building in case we get some unwanted visitors in the form of NSG, or those Threshul dogs. I will have to move on to initiate the backup plan and may not be available to support you, so a lot writes on you. The mission depends on your competency and the ability of your men to defend the compound, so don't fuck it up. The tense interaction was broken up by the sounds of the truck arriving. Anshuman and Jagdeep joined their men and transported 16,000-litre containers of Noxavat on trolleys into the building. Jagdeep left six of these in the building, before seeking the aid of three men to move the remaining ten containers out through a rear entrance. Good luck, Jagdeep said to Anshman, just as the crack of a rifle shot rang out, followed by the thud of a body crumpling to the floor. Ah! Sniper! Someone shouted out from the barricades that barred the entrance to the pumping station. Jagdeep and Anshaman spotted the body of one of their men sprawled on the floor behind the sandbag barrier. His head reduced to pulp. Jagdeep picked up an RPG that was leaning against the wall and said, I knew the distraction in Indore wouldn't work. These hounds are a different breed altogether. But we are prepared. Give them hell." Jigdeep followed his men as they carried the Noxavat to the banks of the river Narmada. Outside, the gunfire roared as the Indian Conclave fire teams engaged the intruders. Anshuman watched the higher killer and his team leave before instructing two of his men to start pouring the Noxovat into the outlets of the water treatment plant. Anshuman smiled as he watched two thugs dressed in hazmat suits pour the brackish fluid into the supply lines that would take the poison to the mouths of thousands of innocent souls. Then he waited within the building, trusting his defenders to do their job. He had to. As much as he wanted to step out and join his men in slaying the intruders, he had his orders. He was the last line of defense, protecting the men transferring the Noxavat from the containers to the outlet pipes. He was death incarnate for those who dared to disrupt the first steps towards Pralea. On big missions, Usha took on the role of a sniper to provide overwatch and clear a path for the team if the entry points were heavily defended. Decades of experience as a sniper who accompanied surgical strike teams along the line of control made her a deadly asset. Back in the day, she would crawl through thick vegetation and deploy her trusty old Dragunov to take out jihadi infiltrators and enemy combatants sneaking into India's sacred territory. Now she looked through the Kala's ZF-69 scope of the Austrian SSG-69 rifle, at the combatants arrayed against her team. They were positioned behind sandbags and other barricades stacked up at the entrance to the pumping station. With an effective firing range of 800 meters, the weapon was a good fit for the mission. Usha lay prone, covered by her ghillie suit, on a rocky outcrop jutting out of one of the hills surrounding the compound, about 700 meters from the pumping station building. Subbu was in a nearby van, operating a PD-100 Black Hornet Nano UAV. He was serving as a spotter, calling out targets to Usha, enabling her to calculate her firing vectors through the haze of the smoke grenades that Arihant and Faiza had deployed when they stormed the compound. Usha smiled at the excitement in Subbu's voice as he gave her precise instructions. Usha pulled the trigger, turning a skull into a vaporous streak of red mist that hung temporarily in the air before vanishing like a bloody magic trick. After each shot, she deftly operated the bolt to chamber another bullet before repeating the act of taking lives with pitch-perfect headshots. After she had killed six of the defenders, she turned the scope to scan the approach of her operatives. Arihant and Faiza were in their special forces combat gear taking cover behind the concrete barrier that surrounded the large tank with its solar panels that resembled silicon and metal floral bouquets. They would have to take out a few more of the defenders to cross the bridge and enter the pumping station. The full frontal attack was necessitated by the marshy terrain behind the building. To the right, commander! Someone is trying to flank the strike team! Subu announced in her ear. Usha turned her attention back to the barricades and spotted a head bobbing slightly above the lip of the cover. She took in a deep breath and exhaled slowly as the scope's reticle zeroed in on the exposed portion of the enemy combatant's skull. She pulled the trigger, and his cranium ceased to exist. A good shot, the actual! Subu exclaimed through the earpiece, almost shattering Usha's eardrums. Good call, Nandiwan, but can I request that you keep your excitement in check? I don't want to go deaf at the end of this operation, Usha said. Subbu did not respond. Usha could sense him, focusing on the monitor in the van. He had spotted something of interest. All operatives, there is movement on the banks of the river. I see several men in hazmat suits... And large containers being stacked in a neat row, Subu radioed. That doesn't sound good, Nandi 1. Usha frowned. Cobra 2, you need to intercept this activity right now, Usha radioed Phaser. We cannot let them compromise the river. Affirmative, Nandi actual, Phaser responded. The Irian Conclave Sniper was frustrated that he couldn't get a lock on the enemy sniper wreaking havoc on their defensive line due to a lack of line of sight. He was also pissed off that he couldn't take shots at the two Trishul operatives on the other side of the tank thanks to the lingering haze from the smoke grenades. In short, the position he had chosen for himself on the water tower was rubbish. There was only one solution. He needed to climb higher. In fact, he would need to be on top of the water tower to achieve his objective. He hissed out his annoyance before picking up his equipment and clambering up the narrow steel ladder that would take him to the flat top of the tower. Once he got there, he laid out the canvas to protect his torso from the hot surface of the tank that had been absorbing the fury of the blazing sun all day long. He lay prone and glassed the compound. He had the two Trishul operatives in his sights now. The elevation had exposed their bodies to his deadly aim, but first he wanted to get hold of the son of a bitch who was sniping them from a distance. Another shot rang from the hills and another one of his fellow soldiers dropped dead. Fuck you, he said under his breath. I am coming for you, you bastard. A buzzing sound caught his attention, and he scoped ahead to find a small UAV hovering over the compound. Assholes, that's how you are doing it. A spotter in the sky. He glassed the surroundings and could not spot the sniper. This person was dug in good and hidden by top-grade camouflage. The drone floated into his field of vision, seeking its next victim. It bust like an annoying fly, and its sound made his blood boil. He had no choice. If he didn't take it out, more of his mates would die today. He would focus on slaying his enemy after he had destroyed his crutch. The drone was firmly in his sights now, and he pulled the trigger and shattered it to pieces. The iodine conclave sniper pulled back the bolt mechanism cleared the chamber and then loaded another bullet before panning his barrel across the surrounding hills. He scoped the trees and the rock formations, looking for the tiniest glint of glass or metal, his trigger finger ready to execute the bane of his existence. By the time Subu radioed in, I'm blind now. Someone has taken out the drone. Usha, who had spotted the muzzle flare of the enemy sniper in her peripheral vision, had logged on to the target. The battles between snipers across the heavily forested swathes of the line of control was legendary. They would lay patiently for hours, surveying the hills for the slightest glint, or a muzzle flare blazing amongst the silhouetted foliage to deliver the kill shot. Usha called on her years of experience, garnered from her service in India's border warlands. She placed her enemy's head in her crosshair and sent the bullet flying towards the prone combatant atop the water tank. The shot, raised out of the barrel at incredible velocity, it bored through the enemy's rifle scope, plunged into his open eyes and exited the back of his skull. Spraying brain matter and eye core onto the bleached white rooftop of the tank. Enemy sniper is KO, Usha said. Woohoo! Subu whooped in delight. Time for you to move to priority location Zeta, Usha instructed Subu. It was time for the computer whiz turned field agent to initiate an important side mission which might mean the difference between success or the death of millions on this day of days. Yes, boss, he said, bringing a smile to Usha's lips. She was very proud of him. She always was. The enthusiasm he had showed all those years ago in completing his compulsory military training to supplement his core skills as a white hat hacker had earned him her respect. While he was not a warrior like Arihant or He did not lack the courage or the conviction to commit to the most dangerous of duties with gusto. It was great to see him shine during a dangerous and important mission like this one. Usha was grateful that she had a crack team to work with to keep the monsters that chomped at the nation's heart at bay. The Narmada flowed peacefully, without remonstrance. But Jagdeep couldn't enjoy the sight of his men corrupting its waters with Noxavat. All he could hear was the sniper repeatedly eliminating the defenders he had arrayed against his enemies. He barked orders to one of his men to guard the two minions pouring the containers of Noxavat into the river. Then he headed back to counter the individual that threatened to derail their operation. The sniper needed to be taken out to ensure their victory and his big payday. He went around the rear of the pumping station, cutting across the thicket before climbing up a hillock from where he glassed the surroundings. He couldn't see the front of the building from where he was located, but it offered an excellent view of the hills that surrounded the compound. His advanced optics allowed him to toggle between a zoom mode and a thermal mode. He scanned from left to right diligently, like a diamond merchant ascertaining the value of a gem. There, in the distance, he saw a red and yellow figure, the prone form identifying it as a sniper. As if to confirm its identity, the zoomed-in figure fired another deadly shot, dropping yet another body. He should have brought more men. Jagdeep gritted his teeth in annoyance he inched forwards, the RPG slung over his back. When he was satisfied that he had reached the optimum firing range, he glassed the point of interest again. The advanced chip in the binoculars estimated the distance to be 850 meters, well within the range of the Russian-made RPG-7. He put the weapon to his shoulder, got into a stable kneeling position and watched the sniper through his scope. When he had the figure covered in the ghillie suit in sight, he let out a small chuckle before firing the rocket. The deadly payload propelled towards the enemy, trailing white smoke. A microsecond before he pulled the trigger, he thought he saw the sniper snap their head in his direction. Good, Jagdeep thought. You can watch your death sneaking towards you before it explodes in your face. The rocket unleashed its fury on the rocky formation where Usher was positioned, exploding with concussive force. It shattered rocks and sent chunks of debris flying in all directions. A compact fireball blackened the surrounding trees and stripped them of their foliage. No one could have survived the fiery devastation unleashed by Jigthib. What was that? Arihan said, looking at Faiza with concern, at the sound of the explosion that wiped out Usha's last known location. A storm of bullets from the barricade pinned the Thrashul operatives to their defensive position behind the concrete barrier around the tank. A few poorly aimed grenades Flung by the Iden Conclave fighters, landed just short of the wall and fell into the tank. The resulting explosions caused the water to geezer up and splash back down into a churning mass of white bubbles. None the actual. What's your status? Idi inquired. And there was no response. None the actual Arihant shouted into his mouthpiece. The radio stayed silent. Nandiwan? Feza said, her voice trembling. The commander. Subhu's hesitant voice came alive on the radio. I think. I think it was a rocket. There is nothing left of the. Nandiwan. Arihant interrupted him with a firm voice. Proceed with your part of the mission. Off. to priority location Zeta. We must not tarry. Millions of lives depend on it. One day, Mataram, Cobra One, Subbu said. Arihant could sense Subbu holding on to his love for his country and his duty towards his people to give him courage to take the next difficult steps. The commander might be out of the picture, but they had to go on as a team and complete the mission. Adihan was next in command, and he intended to competently fulfill his duties. He needed to build the reserves of bravery and resolve in his team. So he responded, "Vande Mathram Faiser, you must go to the river bank. I will give you covering fire, Adihan said, turning to Faisa. Major, Faisa said, biting down the sorrow that threatened to overwhelm her. Adihant's eyes were brimming with tears. He said, We must go on, Fazer. You are the one who usually inspires courage in my heart. I can't have you bail on me. Yes, Major. Faiza said, wiping away her tears. One day, Mathurim. nodded an acknowledgement and then tapped Faiza on her shoulder. She moved forwards in a combat prowl in the direction of the riverbank using the concrete wall for cover, as it absorbed a hail of bullets from their enraged enemies. As Faisa made her way to the riverbank, Adihand placed his SR3 compact assault rifle over the lip of the concrete barrier, He then raked the enemy ranks with a blistering volley of fire that sent them cowering behind disintegrating walls of sandbags. Round after round obliterated the defensive barriers and killed at least one overzealous defender who wanted to take on Arihan's shooting prowess. Arihan pulled out a grenade from his bandolier, released its pin, and flung it at the entrance of the pumping station. The grenade found its mark. A thundering explosion ripped a white tear in the blockade, sending a shower of debris and bloody chunks of flesh flying everywhere. Time to storm the castle, Arihan thought before leaping to his feet and sprinting forwards. ...via the leftmost metal bridge across the tank. His barrel scanned for targets as he swiftly made the crossing. He gunned down any combatant who dared to pop up and take shots at him... ...turning their bodies into a bloody mass of ragged wounds. A fat thug took four shorts to his torso and slammed against the wall, before sliding down and leaving a crimson smear on the white paint. Uh! Uh! A machine gun wielder, declaring his allegiance to the Irian conclave, did not even get a chance to pull the trigger as Arihan shot him where he stood, leaving behind a pulpy mess. Uh! Arihant pulled another grenade out of his bandolier and threw it to the right, where he knew additional defenders were waiting to ambush him. The detonation buckled that section of the building's entrance. The spectacular blast showered chunks of concrete and body parts into the pond, turning it grey and crimson. An arm flew off and landed in front of Erihand. The rightmost bridge was damaged by the explosion, A crinkled mass of metal crushed by the hands of a giant monster. More bullets flew out of Arihan's barrel, creating a carpet of dead and injured souls. By the time he reached the mangled entrance of the pumping station, it smelled like a charnel house. Its walls and floors were decorated with severed limbs, shredded faces and mangled torsos. He paused for a second and scanned for signs of life in the scores of bodies that lay at his feet. Nothing moved. No one stirred. Regardless, he put bullets into the heads of a few of them just to be safe. He didn't want any nasty surprises assailing him from the rear once he got inside the building. As soon as he stepped into the cavernous pumping station, with its dizzying network of pipes and juddering equipment, he spotted two men in hazmat suits pouring chemicals into the outlets. Arihant raised his rifle and ended the life of one of the offenders with a pinpoint shot to the heart. The dead body crumbled to the floor, surprising the other man in the protective gear. He glanced once at Arihant, and let out a scream. However, before Adihant could plant a kill shot in his temple, a powerful kick from the left jerked the rifle out of his arms. A sidekick flew into his belly, compromising his breathing. Powerful arms grabbed the rifle off him and threw it aside before landing double elbow strikes on his jaw, flooring the Indian commando. Anshuman towered over Adihanth like a vengeful demon. Adihanth retrieved his handgun in the blink of an eye, but Anshuman's leg lashed out like a coiled serpent and kicked it out of his grip. The gun clattered away. Yo, keep at it! Anshuman shouted to the last remaining hazmat-clad goon. The man nodded fervently before returning to his task of introducing Noxavat into the water supply. Anshuman smirked at Arihant, who was taking rapid breaths to recover from the force of the blows he had received. Anshuman was an accomplished martial artist, known for using his devastating kicks to take out his enemies. He also wore steel-capped shoes to double the impact of his powerful attacks. You have my permission to use your knife, Anshumin said, pointing to the combat knife sheathed against Arihant's thigh. Come on, get up, the hitman said as he backed away, leaving room for Arihant to rise up and get into a combat stance. Arihant unsheathed his knife. He shook his head to restore his focus. He held the knife in his right hand, the blade pointing upwards, while Anshuman held it in his right with the blade aimed downwards. You dogs killed my son. I will have my vengeance today. But... I don't want it to be easy. Give me a good fight so that I can shed your warrior blood at the feet of my brave son, Anshuman said. I can help you join your son in heaven, Arihant said, lunging forwards, his blade arcing down on the Arian conclave goon's neck. The three men dressed in black Had just finished moving the containers of Noxovat to the edge of the riverbank when Faiser emerged from the clearing, guns blazing. The Israeli Tavor Sitar 21 barked like a vicious hellhound, putting holes in several of the containers and draining their contents into the soil. One of the men in black fired a volley of shots at the intruder. A single shrapnel tore open the flesh on Faser's shoulder. She let out a small cry in response. Another bullet thudded into her protective vest. It hurt like hell, but Feza did not let that deter her from taking lives. Her repose was a series of slugs that tore open the shooter's face and belly. Ah! He fell back like a tree that had been sawed in half. Shit! one of the other goons said as he fumbled with his gun. Faizze switched the rifle to fully automatic and pumped him with lead. His body smashed against a large container of not and it toppled over, crashing into other containers, creating a domino effect which saw them tumble to the ground one after the other. You're going to join your friends in hell if you make a move. She shouted to the last surviving man who was shaking like a leaf in a storm. Put your hands behind your back and slowly lower... Faisa began saying, but she didn't get to complete her sentence. Jagdeep, who was silent as a jungle cat, approached from behind and placed a chokehold on her neck. Got you, little bird. You won't be singing any bullet songs today, Jagdeep said as he squeezed the life out of Faisa. Arihand and Anshuman circled each other within the confines of the pumping station, hunting for vulnerable targets on the human body. Blades clashed and elbows lashed out to deliver secondary strikes every time they came together in martial union. Each time one of the warriors closed in on a kill strike, the other interposed their blade to ward off its deadly impact. Sometimes the knives sliced through thin air. At other times, they scored bloodied lines on each other's flesh. harihans ah! blade jabbed out towards Anshuman's belly, but the Iron conclave devout parried the Indian soldier's effort with his muscly forearm before attempting his own thrust. Harihand leapt back, narrowly avoiding the sharp bowie knife. A flurry of furious strikes and counter-strikes created a lattice work of glinting blades in the air. They breathed rapidly as they disengaged briefly, before going back in for a blistering showdown of lethal knife play. Two equally skilled combatants, cursed and grunted as they cancelled each other's attacks. <coughs> Die! Die, vermin! Anshuman said, as he menaced Arihant with quick strikes, one aimed at his neck, other plunging straight towards his heart, another one racing towards his inner thigh. Slash after slash, delivered with vehemence, sought delicate zones on Arihant's muscular frame. But the Trishul operative evaded every attack directed at him with the grace of a ballet dancer. At one critical point, Anshuman seemed to lose his balance and Adihant latched on to this opportunity to kick his opponent's shin and slash open his left arm. Ah! Anshuman screamed in pain and threw a sharp kick aimed at Adihant's face which the commander fended off with his left arm. Pain shot through Adihant's bone as the steel-capped shoe thudded into his flesh. Ignoring the throbbing pain, Arihant lunged and stabbed into Anshuman's left shoulder. Ah! The combat knife slipped through his flesh and hot blood spurted out of the wound. Anshuman roared in pain and fury and immediately spun around to deliver a round kick that snapped Arihant's face sideways. Ah! Another blistering Taekwondo sidekick into the belly sent spittle flying out of Arihant's mouth. Ah! Anshuman surged forwards and crash-tackled the trishul operative to the floor. Arihan's knife spilled out of his hand as he slammed into the ground with a loud thump. Anshuman climbed atop Arihan's body. He straddled Arihan with both his legs as he sat on his belly. I don't know which of you dogs killed my son, so I will just have to contend myself with killing all of you, Anshuman said examining his own blade like he was laying his eyes on it for the very first time. Arihant's head was reeling from the strikes that Anshuman had landed on him. He turned to the right and saw the lone goon in the hazmat suit pouring Noxavat into the water system. The taste of bitter disappointment filled his mouth. He then turned to face Anshuman, who was waiting for Arihant to make eye contact with him. (laughs) Look at me, coward. Witness the sorrow in the eyes of a grieving father. See the face of your killer, Anshuman said. Saying this, he brought down the blade on Alihan's face. But at the last second, the Indian commando's hands shot up and grabbed onto Anshuman's wrists, stopping the blade, which was centimeters away from his face. Hunchman grunted as he poured his strength into pressing down the knife, willing its sharp edge to plunge into his enemy's head. Alihan struggled against the fury of the Iron Conclave Hidman, groaning as he tried to resist the force from above. His strength waned as the blade edged closer to his flesh, and its tip extracted the first drop of blood from his face. Subbu gazed at the slab of C4 resting on the dizzying nest of pipes located not too far from the pumping station. It was the primary junction from where sanitized water was distributed to the wider network. It was likely that the Irene conclave operatives had already introduced vast amounts of poison into the system. So Trishul had no choice but to disable the distribution channels. Subbu checked the receiver unit attached to the explosive, which was flashing green, one last time, before saying a prayer to Lord Ganesha. He promised to shatter a coconut at his family's favorite Ganesha temple should his part in the mission result in Frishul’s victory. Please blow up, he begged, before running back to his black van, which was parked at a safe distance. When he reached the safe zone, he looked at the chunky remote detonator in his hand, said another round of prayers, and flicked down the big red switch. Yeah! Punishing bolts of pain shot down Lady Han's wrist as he fought against Anshuman's attempts to skewer his head with the bowie knife. Ah! His grip strength waned and the blade responded to his weakening defense by gouging his face with its sharp end. The explosion triggered by Subu in the vicinity of the pumping station rocked the walls and the foundation of the building. It dislodged heavy pipes and pumping equipment some of which crashed onto the goon, pouring the noxovat into the water supply, killing him instantly. The shock of the explosion rattled Anshuman, who was unbalanced for a few seconds. Arihant took this opportunity to flip his grip and place it above Anshuman's hands, which were wrapped around the handle of the knife. He then arced the blade sideways, plunging it into Anshuman's thigh with a big squelch. The Iron conclave killer let out a high-pitched scream. Arihant raised his hips up, bucking Anshuman from his perch. He then shrimped sideways to the left, dislodging Anshuman's mass from his body. Anshuman slid off Arihant's torso and rolled onto the floor, his face a mask of agony. He couldn't pull out the blade. If he did, he would bleed to death. Arihant leapt up to his feet and stood over the distressed form of his enemy, who was trying to kick him with his good leg. Arihant leapt over the striking leg, and slammed his boot down into his opponent's kneecap, shattering it. Ah, It elicited a thunderous roar of pain from the debilitated hitman. The Indian commando walked around to the side, and grabbed onto Anshuman's left arm. He twisted it to the right and landed a hard kick to the elbow joint, breaking it in several places and rendering it useless. Multiple cracking sounds were followed by a head-splitting streak as pain razored through Anshuman's body. The structural integrity of the pumping station was compromised by the explosion triggered by Subu. Fissures appeared on the walls. The ceiling started raining dust and debris onto the soldier and his prey. I think your vengeful mission has failed. Your future attempts to poison the hearts, minds and bodies of our countrymen will also fail. We will make sure of that. Arihant said as he walked around to the other side of the wailing thug. He broke Anshiman's right arm in a similar fashion. Arihant looked around and spotted a length of pipe sticking out of one of the unused containers of Noxovat which was destined for the water supply. He grabbed the rubber pipe, uncoiled it, and brought it over to where Anshiman lay, writhing in agony. Adihant glared at him with the fury of an entire nation. Do you know what our motto is? Adihant said to the pain wracked yet defined form of Anshiman Death to our enemies. Saying this, Adihant shoved the pipe into Anshuman's open mouth and filled his insides with the poison the same toxic fluid he was hoping to pump into the bodies of innocent Indians. An ear-shattering crack from above provided Arihant with a split-second warning that the whole structure was about to collapse. Arihant watched the twitching, gurgling form of the dying hitman for a brief second before discarding the pipe and jumping up to his feet. As he sprinted towards the entrance, the whole building came down around him in a cacophonous uproar. Fazer struggled to breathe as Jagdeep tightened the standing rear naked chokehold on her neck. Ah. He used her captive state to relieve her of her handgun and combat knives. The last surviving man in a hazmat suit, who Fazer was in the process of arresting when Jigdeep intervened, saw a window of opportunity to seek revenge for Fazer's cold-blooded murder of his mates. He threw his gas mask away, and pulled out a machete from a duffel bag. He rushed at Faiza, the blade raced up, as she squirmed to escape Jagdeep's hold on her. When the thug was close enough, and about to bring the machete down on her head, Faiza surprised him by leaping up with both legs, and landing a deadly kick to his windpipe. Ah! The man dropped his weapon and staggered back, clutching his throat. He croaked and wheezed for a few painful seconds, before collapsing to the ground. After taking a few ragged breaths, his body went still. You are dangerous, little bird. There is fight in you, even as I am choking the life out of you, Jagdeep said. phaser croaked in an attempt to respond to him. Die, little bird, die, Jagdeep said. phaser only had moments before she blacked out. She had to execute her escape move in the next few seconds. In her mind, Fazer played out the defense for a standing rear-naked chokehold taught to her by Israeli Defense Force instructors. She was grateful for the weapons-free, close-quarters combat tactics she had learned from Syrat Matkal, the elite Israeli Special Forces division, otherwise known as Unit 269. <coughs> She placed both hands on Jagdeep's choking arm and dropped her hips low while pulling down on it, as if she was attempting a squat. After her hips were below Jagdeep's hips, she twisted the choking arm forwards and turned to the right and exited the submission hold. Jagdeep snarled in frustration at Faiz's successful execution of the complex escape technique. She coughed and sputtered, as she attempted to open up her airway. A band of pain seared her neck, reminding her of how close she had come to dying. Good, I am impressed, Jagdeep said, stepping forwards to land the first of many blows. Feza parried a few with her forearm, and sometimes ducked underneath his powerful strikes. But a few of the thunderous crosses delivered by Jagdeep, smashed into her upper torso as she tried to evade them. One clipped her temple and nearly sent her sprawling to the ground. Fezer retorted with a series of sharp jabs to test Jagdeep's guard before spinning and landing a back fist across Jagdeep's chin. Ah! Jagdeep spat a mixture of blood and saliva from the corner of his mouth and gave her a crimson smile. Like I said, I am impressed Jagdeep said with a lecherous grin. He surged forwards and pummeled Fazer with a series of punches and kicks before sneaking inside her guard and leaping up to land a knee to her chest. (laughs) Fazer staggered back, letting out a series of painful dry coughs. Jagdeep did not wait for her to recover. He rushed at her and threw a haymaker with the intention of taking off her head. But Faiza ducked and weaved and landed a spinning head kick that crushed Jagdeep's orbital bone under his eye. Ah! He roared in agony as he pressed his fingers against the injured bone. Feza landed a forceful Muay Thai straight kick into her enemy's belly, causing him to gasp for air. She followed this with a series of crosses and jabs that reeled the hulking mercenary. He grunted as each powerful strike damaged his flesh and bones. Just as Phaser was about to land a Superman punch to his face, Jagdeep surprised her by surging forwards with his head down, like a bull charging a matador. The mercenary grabbed her by her waist, lifted her up like a WWE wrestler, before backslamming her into the solid ground. <coughs> Luckily, Faisa had the presence of mind to protect the back of her head by keeping it elevated. However, the force of the fall jarred every single joint in Faiza's body and sent a punishing wave of pain crashing through her upper and lower back. She let out an agony-ridden cry that satisfied Jagdeep's sadistic soul. Jagdeep bent down and glared at Faiza. Let me look at you now. You still look pretty, little bird. You won't after I'm done with you, Jagdeep said. The explosion triggered by Subu went off in the distance. Jagdeep turned and stared at the smoke-wreathed flames in the distance. He then heard the noise of falling masonry and disintegrating metalwork from within the pumping station. Something had gone wrong. Their mission had been compromised. His payday had just gone up in flames, literally. His attention was drawn back to Phaser by the grunts of effort she made through her blood-flecked teeth as she reared up. She struggled to stand on both her feet, but a look of submission never crossed her bruised facial features. She raised both her hands and shifted to a boxer's stance, as if to suggest that she was ready to go toe-to-toe with her opponent again. She resembled a battered relic of war, a grim saint who had welcomed eternal punishment with open arms. I gotta give it to you, little bird. You are a tough one, Jigdeep said. I am not your little bird, Feza roared as she threw a punch at him. Jigdeep batted her arm aside and landed a front kick to Feza's chest, sending her flying backwards. She landed some distance away on her back with a sickening crunch. Jagdeep pulled out his handgun and approached her splayed and shattered form. The mission has been compromised. So, as much as I would have loved to beat you to death with my bare hands, I am not getting paid to do it. I am doing shit for free. It's time to bail. Oh, but I have always got a free bullet or two to offer as a parting gift. Jagdeep said, smiling cruelly. Behind Jagdeep, the pumping station disintegrated and fell in on itself, creating a mushroom cloud of dust. Spouts of pressurized water whooshed out of structurally compromised pipes, remaking the compound into a water theme park from hell. Faiza moaned in pain and sadness. The commander was dead. Arihan may have also perished inside the building. She had failed her comrades. She had let them die. The barrel of Jagdeep's gun was now pointed firmly at Fazer's head. Goodbye, little bird, Jagdeep said as he placed his finger on the trigger. Fazer looked beyond the weapon, beyond her soon-to-be killer, at the blue sky. At least, they had prevented most of the Noxovat from being deployed into the water system. They had saved thousands of lives. But nothing would stop Jagdeep from pouring intact containers of Noxavat into the river. A deep sorrow twisted her heart. But then she remembered the oath she had taken to be brave in the face of the deadliest of enemies. She decided that she was not going to give Jagdeep the satisfaction of seeing her defeated soul. She smiled bravely and looked into Jagdeep's eyes and saw his head snap sideways and his brain matter spill out of the left side of his cranium. He crashed to the floor with a thunderous sound. Faiza watched the whole scene, wide-eyed, as if it was a slow-motion sequence in a stylized action movie. Even though it hurt like hell, she turned to look in the direction from where the bullet had originated. She found the bloodied and injured form of Commander Usha limping towards her. Her face was a mask of shrapnels and puckered wounds. Her left thigh was missing a chunk of flesh. Her left arm hung uselessly on its side. Her right hand bore the Glock 19 that had slain the mercenary. You okay, kid, Usha said. Then she collapsed face-first and passed out next to Faze's ravaged form. Even though it had been three months since the raid on Jalud. Faisa could sense the throbbing remains of injuries across her body. As she lifted up the binoculars to glass the valley, a dull pain pounded away on her lats. But it did not distract her from the task at hand. Nothing could distract her from the task at hand. A village of thatched huts and tiled single-story concrete blocks appeared in her eyepiece. She panned to the left and focused on a house painted lime green with red tiles on its roof. A cowshed made from bamboo and palm leaves and a copse of fruiting trees dominated its background. Faizer's army was sweeping the ground in an orange silvar that had faded with time. She looked older now, much older than when Faiza had last come to spy on her. She gazed longingly at her ami's hands wrapped around the broom and yearned for a caress from her calloused fingers. She examined her robust bosom and imagined the warmth radiating from it. That's all she could do. Imagine. She was, and always would be, the watcher in the distance. When you joined Thrashul, your life as an ordinary citizen and your bonds with your family members ended instantly. A public life and loved ones were deemed too dangerous for black ops operatives who joined the division. Before the ink dried on their employment contract, their families were notified of their death on the field of battle or during a training mission. A brave sacrifice while performing their glorious duty for their original regiments. A charred, orphaned, unrecognizable body was committed to their respective gods in the presence of their family members. Flags would be wrapped around their coffins. Guns would be fired. A lie would be born. Their old life would cease to exist. It was curtain call for their roles as daughters, sons, wives or husbands. Their near and dear ones would get a generous pension from the government of India. As a tier one operator, they would receive anonymity and a life of unending war till death claimed their soul. Their only family was their fire team members. Their only mother was Mother India. There was only one man who had broken this precedence the legendary Trishul Operator, known only as Operator X. The man who had rescued Faiza from Morocco. He escaped in the middle of a mission against a notorious criminal organization known as Company B and was never found again. There were rumors that he had managed to change his identity and reintegrate into civilian life. Feza wept tears of sorrow as she continued watching her mother through the binoculars. Hummy, she mouthed in a hushed tone. Her mother suddenly lifted her head up and looked in Faisa's direction, as if she was responding to a familiar voice calling her name from the surrounding trees. Could her mother sense her? Feza did not lower the lenses she let her eyes take in the sight of her mother's kind eyes and generous lips. Her mother looked away, dropped the broom to the floor and walked into the shadows of the kitchen. Feza's mobile beeped, shattering the spell the sight of her mother had cast on her. She gazed at the notification. It said, Mission is a Report at 1700 hours. Feza packed away the binoculars and walked back to her car. Wailing like a child wanting its mother. Vivek Malhotra, the former disgraced scientist from the National Serum Institute, and Arin Conclave Path, who Arindhan and Fazer tracked down after the poisoning event in Barwani, and had the misfortune of copping a bullet in the head from Jagdeep was an avid diarist. He was convinced that he was going to be one of the great heroes of the Aydin conclave and that Noxavat would be a game-changer for the movement. So he maintained detailed records of his exploits, plans and contacts, hoping to one day pen an autobiography detailing his glorious achievements. When Trishul successfully thwarted the attack on Jalud, the Department of Defense, had no choice but to hand over the covert investigation of the source of the dastardly acts in Indore City to the Black Ops Agency. The fact that the Aden Conclave managed to survive and operate in India for decades, even after a sustained effort by intelligence agencies to trace them, meant parts of the Department of Defense were compromised. There was a mall, or several malls in the corridors of power, leaking information to the traitors allowing them to be one step ahead of Trishul. Only Trishul and the chiefs of Army, Navy, Air Force and Roe had any knowledge of Operation Karthik. The unit nicknamed Night Haunters, Trishul's elite rendition specialists, tracked, monitored and bagged persons of interest who had helped the Aydin conclave carry out attacks they did this with the help of the information in Vivek Malhotra's diaries and digital devices. The suspects were renditioned and taken to black sites in Tajistan, where operatives who specialized in strategic torture obtained information that helped build a comprehensive picture of their enemy. Within two months, phone taps, cyber intercepts and physical stakeouts were in place to monitor activities at the Sriman's Vedanta Society in Pune. High-quality images from the Indian-made 1 UAV's cameras clicked from an altitude of 3,000 feet over 30 days showed unusual activity in the compound and a concentration of gun-bearing security staff guarding the lotus-shaped building at the center of the compound. Clearly, there was more than religious studies and meditation sessions going on at the venue. Phone taps. Cryptic messages between individuals within the compound and video recordings combined with the confessions of captured Irene Conclave operatives had confirmed what Trishul suspected. The architect of death, who signed off on the murder of hundreds in Indore City, who may have caused untold damage if the water supply and the river were poisoned, was present at the ashram. However, plans were afoot to shift their base of operations to Assam there was only a small window of opportunity to nab the mysterious leader seen in the UAV photos and surveillance videos. Usha, who had survived the attack in Jalud, was wearing an arm sling and restricted to a wheelchair. The army medical staff had recommended six months' rest. However, she insisted on being present to guide her operatives as they prepared to prosecute Operation Karthik on the night of May 29th to seek Bloody revenge. Arihant and Faisa had received the same message. Mission is a go. Report at 1700 hours. They were briefed inside Nandi, the flying HQ, on their way to Pune. They were instructed to use stealth tactics to begin with and show no mercy. Only the package identified as the Grandmaster warranted retrieval. The rest would experience the terror and pain felt by so many men, women, and children in Indore as they were shredded by Aydin conclave bullets. Aydihant and Feza entered the ashram compound at 20 hundred hours through two different ingress points two vulnerable areas in the tall walls, which were dark spots unmonitored by CCTVs or patrolling guards. The Thrashul operatives repelled down ropes attached to grappling hooks anchored to the top of the wall. They then traversed a pre-planned track made up of shadows and dark zones in the grounds, missed by halogen lampposts and cameras. Commander Usha had mapped this optimal route with the aid of the UAV surveillance photos. Subu had created a virtual reality walkthrough to help Arihant and Faser memorize their progress through the set pathway. Dressed in black, skin-tight bodysuits made with light-absorbing material, the two commandos resembled predators in the ocean prowling its lively bed during moonless nights. The dive suits also had a thin layer of Kevlar woven into it, offering limited protection from bullets and knives. Even though it featured knee pads, ammo pouches, sheaths and harnesses for weapons, the suit was comfortable and allowed for easy movement to facilitate stealthy infiltration and silent takedowns. ENVGB helmet-mounted dual-wave band goggles which featured thermal and image intensification technology and also streamed a feed from the weapon scope to the goggles allowed the soldiers to view the night like a black and white film. While Phaser was armed with an Israeli-made suppressed IWI X-95 Tavor, Adihant carried an internally suppressed Russian AS valve with subsonic cartridges. The shots from these two lethal weapons would emit minimal noise and was perfect for Mission Karthik. They also carried Beretta handguns with silencer attachments. Moving from one lush garden bed to another, Feza managed to stealthily take down five Irene conclave guards dressed in grey uniforms. She sneaked up behind them and slid their throats. She then hid their bodies in the foliage after she had snuffed out their lives she performed this ballet of death with maximum efficiency and speed. She had to. They had very little time before the security supervisor raised an alarm when the patrolling guards failed to respond to his check-in requests. Uh! Faisa continued her kill streak, taking three more lives before reaching the most challenging checkpoint in her path. A water fountain that was well lit and patrolled by two guards. This was always going to be difficult, and she knew it from the VR drills she had conducted at the base. Faizer closely observed the movement patterns of the guards as they strolled around the fountain. When she found a suitable opening, she padded across the pathway and climbed upon the lip of the water feature's external concrete ring. Then she slowly slunk into the waters, the disturbance muffled by burbling spouts of water. She held her breath and just raised her eyes above the waterline and monitored the positions of her future victims. The two guards walked around the fountain a few times, oblivious to the deadly eyes watching them, before coming together to share a cigarette. Feza didn't expect to get this lucky so soon. She stood up, raised her weapon and fired one shot each into the skulls of the guards and dropped them. She exited the fountain, water sluicing down her bodysuit, and scanned 360 degrees. She dragged the dead bodies and hid them underneath a cluster of shrubs. She then proceeded to the tiled pathway that led to the lotus flower-shaped building, which was her eventual destination. Irihanth had a good run of luck, as he snuck up behind the hapless guards, catching them unawares. He muffled their shouts of surprise with his strong hands before gifting them a sharp blade to the neck. <coughs> he killed seven Idin conclave goons in this fashion. But then his luck ran out. One of the guards, who happened to be accompanied by a dog, was alerted by the creature's barking before Arihant could immobilize him. The angry guard unleashed the animal into the bushes as he scanned the darkness for the source of the disturbance. The dog whined and passed out as Arihand knocked it out with the karate chop to its temple. The guard pulled out his gun with one hand and pointed it straight ahead from where he heard his animal's cry. With the other hand, he pulled out his radio and was about to press the transmit button when Arihant sprang out of the shadows and put two bullets in his head. Two other guards, alerted by the commotion, also came from the right-hand side, their weapons readied for firing. Arihant snapped to the right and fired two pitch-perfect shots, dropping them where they stood. He took a few deep breaths to compose himself before dragging the bodies and hiding them underneath the boughs of a fruiting tree. That could have gone south fast, he muttered, before continuing on his way to meet up with Fazer. Once Adihan's and Faiza's paths converged, they came together to unleash death with impunity. The grounds ran the extravagant lotus-shaped building at the heart of the ashram was bathed in light and crawling with guards. However, the different approach vectors of the commandos and their surgical strike caught the enemies by surprise. The dark shapes of the Trishul death dealers menaced the defenders with precise headshots and deadly stabs. The footfoot low decibel rattling of their weapons sent solid slugs boring through vulnerable organs. Their victims dropped dead before they could even draw their weapons. Once they had cleared the grounds, Arihant and Faisa met each other on the veranda that wound around the building. The conference room where the package was located was merely meters away, just around the curve of the ornately decorated passage. They nodded to each other before forming a combat train with Arihant leading their way and Faiza taking the rear. She occasionally walked back-to-back with Arihant to scan behind them. They were just about to reach the doors to the conference room when it flung open. Six men dressed in capirotes and white robes, bearing shotguns, handguns and an assortment of bladed weapons, sprang out of the room. Their eyes fell on the Threshul operatives. Clearly, some of the bodies had been discovered and the guards in the central chamber were alerted. But it didn't matter. This close to the heart of their objective, nothing could stop the well-trained commandos. Feza and Arihant engaged in close quarters fire with utmost precision, turning their white-clad enemies into canvases of crimson and gold. One of the blade-bearing freaks copped a kick from Arihant in the chest before being shot point-blank in his face. Faiza battered off the handgun from a goon who wanted to blow her head off at close range before sticking her own weapon in his mouth and blowing a hole in the back of his head. One by one, they fell. Arihant and Faiza did not let the obstruction slow them down as they peeked into the conference room once they had killed all of their opponents. A long oval table had been tipped on its side and robed in hooded thugs took potshots at them from behind its safety. <gunshot> Arihant and Faisa pulled back, pressed their backs against both sides of the open door and let a storm of bullets stream out of the room. <gunshot> Arihant extracted a flashbang from one of his pouches and hurled it into the room. It went off with a bang and a flash of harsh light that blinded the occupants. Arihant and Faisa stormed the room. Their advanced night vision goggles revealed bodies bearing weapons, their forms reeling from the impact of the flashbang. <laughs> the Indian warriors fired without any mercy, dropping four members of the Grand Master's inner circle. The commandos scanned the rest of the room and cleared it. They then removed the hoods of the dead men and saw that the Grandmaster was not among them. <coughs> Faiser studied every nook and cranny of the room. There, she said, pointing to an open hatch in the floor. A tunnel, Adihant remarked. Adihant and Faiser dropped into the subterranean space without a second thought. It was a well-lit tunnel that led towards the eastern end of the Astrom complex. CCTV cameras, heavily insulated cabling and air conditioning vents graced its walls. Rapid footfalls echoing through the structure fell on their ears. The Grandmaster was on the run, but he had not managed to get too far. Arihant and Phazer flicked their night-vision devices up and gave chase. They remembered the faces of the innocents who had died because of the evil man's machinations to fill their lungs and their legs with the strength to power towards their quarry. Within minutes, they caught up to the robed figure running weakly, a handheld radio clutched to his ears. Stop, you coward! Fazer shouted. At the sight of the villain, Arihant built up an extra burst of speed and gained on the fugitive. He pulled out a combat knife from his sheath, and using a technique that would have made a professional knife thrower proud, he flung the blade at the fleeing figure. The weapon crunched into the back of his right thigh, eliciting a high-pitched scream and dropping him to the floor midstride. The white-robed schemer fell face-first into the ground, the radio clattering away from his clammy hands. Adihanthin Fazer lifted the Grandmaster to his feet and slammed him against the wall. The action caused the knife to bore deeper into his flesh. Ah. The Grandmaster's pitiful screams echoed through the tunnels. His middle-aged face and piercing green eyes reflected terror and pain in equal measure as he sought mercy from his captors. You were not fast enough, Arihant said before slapping the man across his face. The walkie-talkie that was lying on the floor suddenly buzzed with static. "'Who were you talking to? "'Who was on the other end?' Arihant inquired. The Grandmaster shook his head. A darker pall of fear spread across his features. "'Tell me!' Arihant roared as he slapped him again. Feza, the voice on the radio said. Arihant and Faiza looked at the device in surprise, before glancing at each other. Phaser pick up the walkie-talkie, the voice said. A shocked Phaser retrieved the radio and put it to her mouth. Who are you? How do you know my name? she asked. Look at the camera, Phaser. Flash me a smile, won't you? Give your old friend a warm hello, the voice said. Faisal looked up at one of the CCTV cameras protruding from the wall. Its glassy eye watched her lecherously as the voice on the radio laughed. The truth dawned on her like thunder. Her legs felt like jelly. Her mind reeled in disbelief. The voice. She knew him. The angel of darkness. The devil with the smooth voice. Who had presided over her cruel and invasive torture in Morocco. It is good to lay my eyes upon you after all these years, the voice said. Bastard, she shouted. What is it? Adihan inquired in a concerned voice. I told you, Feza, we are everywhere. You are an Aden Conclave operative? Feza asked. No, 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 no. I am not one of those racist, casteist fools. They are but one of the many traitors I foster in your motherland. We feed all the venomous snakes that seek to envenomate Mother India's flesh, the voice said. We will find you. I will find you, Faizer said in a determined voice. No, you won't. I knew you were attacking the compound. I let it happen. The Irian conclave needed to be punished for their incompetence. They have let me down. They are not a part of my plans anymore. The man with the silky voice said. Feza's mouth was wide open in disbelief. Feza, what is going on? Arihand, who could hear snippets of the transmission, inquired urgently. ''Do as you please with this dog, dear Faiza. Choke him to death, if you so please,'' the smooth voice said. ''You will not order me round, you vile bastard,'' Feza said. ''I see that you are enraged. Our last encounter clearly left an impression on you. (laughs) After all, I had gifted you so much pain in such deliciously intimate places.'' the disembodied voice said. I swear on the sacred soil beneath my feet, we will track you down, and your death will be by my hands. Fez's said into the mouthpiece, I will dismantle your precious country before you can fulfill your oath. Then I will be gone in the dark. You will never find me again. On second thought, maybe, just maybe, I might come over and give you a goodbye kiss before I vanish. Ciao, Phaser. The voice clicked off and a threatening silence reigned in the tunnel. The Grandmaster had bled a lot and passed out. Arihan bore his weakened body over and across his sturdy shoulders. I don't know what that was all about, but I'm sure you will explain yourself in the post-op download. Arihant said, Feza nodded. Her face telegraphed how raw her feelings were at that very moment. Now we must go back or this rat is not going to see another sunrise and we will miss out on valuable intel. Arihan said before turning to head back as per their original plan. An armed chopper would be at an extraction zone at the center of the ashram in minutes. I am going to see where this tunnel takes me. You must go. Fayza said. We have the package. The mission is a success. We must bail now, Arihant said. No, I have to do this, Fayza said. Arihant gave her a concerned look and nodded reluctantly. Then he turned and marched the other way, carrying the mourning form of their hunting trophy. Feza followed the tunnel for another kilometer and a half before she reached the exit. A steel door which was ajar opened up to a vista of orchards and farmlands bathed in moonlight. At the entrance to the tunnel someone had placed a bunch of wild flowers. didn't have to guess too hard to know who that might have been. Visions of the torture she endured in the room in Morocco flashed across her mindscape. She shivered at the thought. A cold sensation crept up her back and bored into the back of her neck. Feza forced herself to look up at the moon. She took in a deep breath and exhaled twice in short bursts to regain her composure. She looked at her rifle, at her uniform, She reminded herself of who she was. She was a perfect killing machine devoted to her nation. She had fought and survived many physical and mental battles to get here. I survived. I am a survivor. She uttered the mantra that helped her regain her courage every time she woke up from the prison of her nightmares. To this she added another mantra. I am the bringer of death to the enemies of my motherland." Then she crushed the flowers underneath her boots. later, Adihan was seated at a booth in a North Delhi sports pub, nursing a full schooner, when he felt a tap on his shoulder. You going to drink that? Feza said, settling down on the seat opposite to him. I will, if you tell me what transpired in that tunnel. The bits that you conveniently left out of the post-op briefing. The things the man was saying to you on the radio. Adihan said. Faizer smiled knowingly. The Grandmaster's capture had resulted in the total decimation of the organization across India after he gave up details of their various chapters and the names of high profile members. But Adihant and Faizer did not have the luxury to dwell on the successful execution or outcomes of Operation Kathak. They had both arrived in Delhi to kick off another investigation and were waiting for orders. Downtime like this was rare, but a blessing, given the high-pressure environment they worked in. I was going to watch two movies back-to-back, but instead I decided to join you here to shoot Breeze. But you are after the heavy stuff, hey? Faiza said. This job is not just about martial prowess and technical wizardry. It is also built on a foundation of trust, Arihan said. If that's the case, you must also tell me what keeps you up at night, Faizer said. Adihan lowered his gaze and glared at the chilled alcoholic beverage in front of him, its glass facade sweating small droplets of water. Then he looked up and nodded at Faizer. When I was with the Marcos, I had to bring down one of my own colleagues who had gone rogue and was threatening the lives of hundreds due to his misguided belief. Irihan said. He squirmed uncomfortably before he uttered the next sentence. He made me go through a child to get to him. He let out a big sigh of relief. His shoulders relaxed as if he had been carrying a terrible weight on them for decades. Faisa placed her hand on Han's hand for a few seconds before drawing it back. I'm sorry. It must be hard to live with what happened, she said. It is. I know it was probably unavoidable, that the lives of many more were at stake. But Arihan's eyes welled up. Now you, he said, wiping his tears. Feza sat back in her seat and told him everything. She told him about Morocco, the man with the silky voice, the torturer, and her rescue by the legendary Operator X. Adihan listened to the whole story wide-eyed. I am seeking help from a mental health professional, she said, but it's a long road. It was Adihan's turn to lay his fingers on FaZe's trembling hand. The Grandmaster gave everything up, but he still hasn't confessed about his financial backers. He hasn't uttered a word about the man he was speaking to on the radio. Fazer said. The one and the same. Fazer nodded. That is because he doesn't know any details about them, about the man on the radio. He has just been accepting funding from your mysterious tormentor, thinking he's a generous devotee with a lot of cash to burn. Adihan said. I have a theory. Fazer said. Yes, me too. Adihan said. Chanakya. They both said the name at the same time. The legendary enemy, referred to as Chanakya in the Indian intelligence community, was a ghost, a myth, a single man, a fixer who was working on the behest of several enemy countries funding various terror operations in India. They never had any solid intelligence to confirm the existence of the man. But there was always rumours, whispers about a secretive actor, a puppet master, driving anarchy and violence in India, with the sole intention of bringing about the collapse of its democratic, military and financial institutions. It's just a theory, Faiza said. Agreed, we cannot be certain, Irihan said. Faiza sighed and shook her head. Promise me that when the time comes, if and when our suspicions are confirmed, you will be more forthcoming with your information to our superiors. They are not going to take very kindly to you. But, Adihan said, I will, Faiza assured him. Just then, both of their phones beeped. Briefing at 1700 hours. It said, There goes my movie marathon, Feza said with a smile. Thank you. I am glad you chose to come here instead. Adi Hunt said, returning the smile. No, thank you, Feza said, acknowledging the courage he had shown to open up to her. They both got up and left. The beer remained untouched. A new mission beckoned.